Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The United States Civil War, also known as the War Between the States, is among the most important events in all of U.S. history. Today, we take a good look into what factors led up to the South seceding from the Union. It turns out that the issue of African slavery had divided the United States long before it was even a nation. We'll also look a bit into the history of African slavery, how and why it spread in the U.S. We'll look into how the war was fought, how much blood was shed. The U.S. Civil War, still America's bloodiest war. The North alone lost almost 365,000 men in the fighting, and the over 600,000 total American casualties eclipses the number of U.S. casualties in World War I and World War II combined. The U.S. Civil War consisted of roughly 10,500 battles, engagements, and other military actions, including nearly 50 major battles and about 100 others that had major significance. So we're not going to be able to explore each and every one here today, but this week's timeline is loaded with info. If you know quite a bit about the Civil War, you'll know so much more by the time you're done with today's suck. So let's get historical. Let's get academic. Let's also get goofy and weird and irreverent and have a good old time learning about a lot of people having a terrible time in the four-year living hell that was one of the least civil periods in the history of the United States today on Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening. Happy Monday and welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suck Master, Dom DeLucifina's Sub, the Bearded Bastard, Wackadoodle Troll, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, glory be to Triple M, and praise good boy Bojangles. Uh, thank you for the continued ratings and reviews. If you have more time to spend online these days, and you do love this show, please let others know. Leave a nice comment. Leave a nice rating. It does really help spread the suck. And it's free. It's the free way to spread the suck. Uh, did you guys know I was the king of hearts? Did you know that? It's true. 
It's now printed on an oh-so-soft 305% imported lemur, uh, lemur eyelid shirt. It's tough to get these uh, you know, exotic fabric names out sometimes. So it must be true. New King of Hearts tee up at badmagicmerch.com. Black and white designs. A deck of card style. You really have to see it to understand it. So, so check out the store. Uh, also, my Pandora exclusive continues. If you want some new free stand-up while stand-up tours remain on hold, uh, get some extra free laughs. Just search Dan Cummins, Get Out of Here Devil, and pull up the whole over an hour long thing on Pandora. Easy link on my Instagram profile right to it. And if you haven't seen it, you can watch my previous hour special, Don't Wake, uh, Don't Wake the Bear, on Amazon Prime, uh, free for Prime members. And then this new special uh, will hit Amazon on the 28th, hit Spotify, iTunes, other audio outlets on May 1st. It'll also be on On, De- on Demand. What was I trying to say? Om? On Demand? On Demand. Spectrum, Dish, other cable providers. Uh, that'll be on the 28th as well. So lots of, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff still coming out, thankfully, while, uh, while we're sheltered in place. And that is it for the top of the show announcements. Real quick today. Now let's travel to a different time. Let's escape to the past when things were so much worse than they are now. Let's be glad we did not live during the U.S. Civil War. Uh, let's kick this war suck off with some U.S. Civil War basics. Let's talk about some stuff that many of you U.S. meat sacks probably learned in fifth grade and then, like myself, probably quickly forgot because you didn't become uh, Civil War historians or reenactors. Stuff that those of you uh, living elsewhere around the world may never have learned. Okay, so quick facts. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, very tall man. He was six foot nine. Jefferson Davis, very short. He was four foot six. When the war ended, the South was just one to two weeks away from developing the world's first atomic bomb. Uh, There were only 2 million whites living in the South and 75 million African slaves. There were 460 million people living in the North and also 30 million Polish monsters. Uh, The South's greatest weapon in the war was the Roanoke recluse spider. It psychologically intimidated uh, Yankee aggressors greatly. Infamous, this spider for working in teams or one spider opens your eyelid when you're asleep, uh, lets other spiders crawl in and burrow deep inside your head. The Roanoke recluse was also known to go not just for the eyes, but also the ears and the mouth. A bite in those areas would send their venom straight to your brain. Then the venom would paralyze you in small amounts, kill you in large amounts. When one spider would bite you, in addition to venom, it would release a chemical compound that would attract many other spiders. And they'd swarm on you, and you'd end up covered in hundreds, if not literally thousands of spiders crawling into your mouth, crawling into your eyes, most of your eyes, as you lay helpless, and they would lay their eggs in your brain, and they would build nests in your sinus cavity and in your butt and in your vagina and all, all sorts of evil shit. And they would keep you paralyzed and eventually they would kill you after they ate your insides and uh, you know controlled your mind and made you walk around and stuff like a zombie. And it would take weeks for you to finally die. And uh, Did I say quick facts earlier? I meant, I, meant, I meant to say quick fake facts. If you're a new listener, know that sometimes I'm just gonna say some weird crazy shit. You gotta pay attention if you want the real facts. And if you don't like that, well, well then you know what? Why don't you fucking beat it, okay? All right? You color inside the lines all the time, walking bummer. Now for the real info. U.S. Civil War began in 1861. So let's talk about what life was like at that time in America compared to now. Actually, we'll uh, we'll use figures from the year before since an 1860 census info was actually taken. Uh, Obviously, life in 1860s America, the year Abraham Lincoln was elected president, nothing like it is today. Uh, For instance, traveling, terrible compared to now. Uh, they didn't have even one Wetzel's pretzel in any of their airports uh, or a Starbucks or espresso. Uh, they didn't have airplanes at their airports. They didn't have airports at their airports. Clothing was comparatively terrible. 
You couldn't find a decent pair of basketball or skateboard shoes or cross trainers because none of that shit existed. You couldn't find comfortable swimsuits to sit in the hot tub with. You couldn't find any hot tubs to sit in uh, or look at or daydream about because those didn't exist. Medical care, absolutely terrible, like scary, terrible. You couldn't find a good dentist or doctor back in 1860 because those people didn't exist yet. Medical care was so bad during the Civil War that for every one soldier who died in battle, and a lot of soldiers died in battle, two would die of disease. Uh, check out this bit of 19th century doctoring info. Whiskey, laudanum, shaw. For bowel complaints like diarrhea, doctors would give you some opium, uh, which actually surprisingly does kind of work. Uh, so the next time, you know, your poop gets a little loose and ends up, uh, you know, in a civil war with your butthole, definitely do lots of heroin. Uh, seriously, though, opioids can reduce gastrointestinal motility, propulsion, secretions, and can increase gastrointestinal muscle tone, which can help control diarrhea. However, uh, opium can also and often does lead to more opium, very addictive. And then once your diarrhea is gone, now you have uh, an addiction to opium, which is, you know, considerably worse than having diarrhea. Uh, constipation was treated with an infamous substance called the blue mass, a mixture of mercury and chalk. Uh, mercury and chalk doesn't cure shit. Doesn't cure fucking anything. Well, in large doses, it can cure uh, being smart. Uh, it can cure living. It can, it can give you mercury poisoning, which can wreak havoc on your brain and other organs, and it can actually kill you. Uh, blood poisoning and septus, other infections were common back in 1860 because doctors didn't do stuff like wash their hands. Medical science was in the dark ages compared to now during the Civil War. Life was worse in almost every way in 1860 compared to now. Modern sewer systems didn't exist. Think about that. I mean, it wasn't like there was a bunch of outhouses cluttering up every city. You know, it wasn't quite like that. But there also weren't modern sewage treatment plants. In many cities, life stunk in 1860, literally. In many urban areas like Boston, it often smelled like shit because modern plumbing wasn't consistently whisking away over 200,000 daily turds. And that number is based on how many people live there and how often the average person does poo. That's not a made-up number. Over 200,000. Turds a day. It's a lot of poop. And that shit adds up. That shit literally adds up. For a select few, life was probably better back then, though. Uh, like if you were really, really into riding horses, like if you loved riding horses more than anything else, you know, then you may have liked life back in 1860 more than now. You could ride your horse damn near anywhere back in 1860. Also, easier to be super openly racist back then, if that's what you're into. Uh, you could say overtly racist shit just about anywhere and receive little, if any, public backlash. Uh, definitely easier to access opium back then. Uh, you didn't even need a doctor to get it. Laudanum, widely available. Contains almost all of the opium alkaloids, including morphine and codeine. So if you love getting high on opium, being super racist, and riding horses more than everything else, life was better in 1860. Uh, if not, well, you'd probably rather throw yourself off a fucking building than have to live back then. Let's talk about numbers now. How many meat sacks were around in 1860? Uh, in America compared to now. According to Google, the U.S. currently has 328.2 million people. In 1860, the population of the U.S. was 31 million, less than one-tenth the size it is today. The country had an estimated 2.5 million when it was founded, around 4 million by the time we took our first census in 1790. So while there was less people than today, it had been growing at, at a very fast rate. In 70 years, the population had increased almost eight times over. New York City had the nation's largest urban area, with under a million people, around 813,600. Philadelphia was second, 565,500 people. Around 178,000 people lived in Boston, which may not sound like a lot, but the population was extremely concentrated. 
and Boston life was definitely urban living. The largest city in the South was New Orleans, 168,675. Chicago had 112,000. San Francisco, 56,800. All of Idaho, not counting American Indians, less than 15,000 people. So uh, less to do in Idaho back in 1860 than, uh, you know, in, say, Boston. But based on that whole, you know, turd sewage situation, probably smelled better. Uh, Not a lot of people compared to now, but the young country was growing exponentially. In 1800, there were 200 newspapers being published in the U.S. By 1860, there were 3,000. Now let's talk about mail. I found this fascinating. Think about how important mail is to your life today. Much of my life revolves around the mail. We, we might not be sending a lot of letters anymore, a lot of handwritten notes, but what about Amazon packages? What about literally anything and everything you buy online? Huge companies like Amazon, at least during normal times in many markets, were offering same-day shipping, if not next-day shipping. Giant warehouses, distribution staffs, complex supply chains, making that possible. And again, before our current new don't-go-anywhere life, you could get uh, just about anything uh, from a major retailer uh, in no more than two days, you know, two-day shipping. In 1860, the best they had was the Pony Express. Bunch of horses. That was the best. It was revolutionary, and it had just barely arrived in 1860. On April 3rd, 1860, the Pony Express made its first famous trek from California to Missouri, paving the way for future mail delivery around the nation and working very hard right now to hold off for the time being on any pony play jokes. I know I went hard on those the past two weeks, and I didn't mean hard in the sexual sense, or did I? Easy, Sarsaparilla. Easy, girl. Oh, oh, girl. Uh, Johnny Fry was the first Pony Press, uh, Pony Express cross-country rider. Uh, great Pony Express rider name, by the way, Johnny Fry. Ride, Johnny Fry. Ride, ride like the wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was 120 pounds of sinewy muscle and experienced rider at just 20 years old. Fry's saddle was loaded with 50 pieces of mail, including a congratulatory message from President Buchanan to Governor Downey of California. Now, to be clear, Fry didn't ride all the way to California by himself nonstop. That would be insane. He and his horse would both be dead long before they got there if they tried that. Uh, Fry took the mail on the first leg of the westbound route, delivering it from the stables in St. Joseph, Missouri to Seneca, Kansas, a distance of about 80 miles. The entire journey from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California took a lot of riders, uh, even more horses, and it took about 10 days. took 10 days, and this was super fast. People were pumped. People were like, what? I can write a letter. Are you serious? In Missouri on April 1st and maybe here back before May. Holy shit. What kind of dark sorcery makes such lightning fast communication possible? And now uh, many of us complain if we're trying to text someone across the world, a video, and it takes more than 10 seconds to load and send. Just come on. What the fuck? I got five bars. I got 5G. God damn, why, why is this working? Poor Fry would be dead by 1863. He fought for the Union, was killed in the Civil War by Quantrill's Raiders in the Battle of Baxter Springs. Legend has it that in in a hand-to-hand fight with Confederates, Fry killed five of his assailants before falling uh, mortally wounded himself. He was fast and tough. Hail Nimrod. Hail Johnny Fry. Now let's talk about how long people lived back then compared to now. Average life expectancy in 1860 was 39.4 years. And it would drop further during the Civil War era, you know, due to all those killed in battle. In 160 years since then, it has almost doubled to 78.9 years. Uh, The infant mortality rate was absolutely horrific back then. 
Over 180 deaths per 1,000 live births compared to 5.6 today. My God. To be clear, infant mortality uh, rate is not the same as birth rate. In 1860, just over 41 babies were born dead or died, uh, you know, during the birthing process. But over 180 of every 1,000 babies died before the age of one. And if you go back just 10 years to 1850, 217 per 1,000 died before the age of one, compared again to 5.6 today. Roughly 40 times as many babies died back then compared to now. So 1860 would also be a great time to be alive if you really hated babies, right? Like if you go through your day thinking stuff like, ah, sure, online porn, hot tubs are pretty cool, but you know, what I'd really rather be doing is just hearing about everybody's babies dying, you know? I mean, if that's you, then you would love 1860, you unstable psychopath. Uh, I feel like this infant mortality rate info alone should shut up conspiratorial lunatics who think nefarious forces working behind the scenes for centuries are trying to kill the world's working class and poor. People who rant about chemtrails and Agenda 21. If the Illuminati has been conspiring against humanity for centuries, then they're really bad at their jobs. They're, like, they're getting worse. They're getting worse at killing us as time goes on. Much worse. They're getting worse as, at, at enslaving us. Uh, we'll talk about slavery more in a bit. But I'd like to think any rational person understands slavery was uh, a wee bit more common in 1860 than it is now, at least in the sense of, you know, uh, lifelong chattel or I'm thinking chattel. Uh, I have the word later in my notes later. I will talk way more in depth about slavery, but in the sense of, you know, actually outright owning people for life, owning their kids, less of that now than it was back in 1860. Uh, right now, half the world is sheltered in place. Schools are closed because the virus is killing by most logical estimates maybe around 1% of the people it infects. And yes, I know uh, some places reported the mortality rate is high or higher than even 6.5%, but that is based on known cases. And experts seem to unanimously agree that way more people have been exposed to COVID-19 than those who have tested positive because there just isn't enough tests. So think about that. The world's freaking the fuck out that around 1% of those who catch this virus will die. Back in 1860, almost one in five humans didn't make it to the age of one. And millions of people were enslaved in like plantation slavery. Even as I record this podcast during the strangest time in my lifetime, life is still immensely better now than it was in 1860. Uh, now a quick word about Northern life versus Southern life in 1860. Were there major differences between life in the North and life in the South? Uh, there were actually. Obviously, there were states that had slaves and states that did not. That's a huge difference. Also, the Southern states were uh, much more rural the North in 1860, the economy in most places based upon plantations, agriculture, easily the primary industry, while in the North, the industrial revolution was beginning. Factories were getting going. The South relied heavily on slave labor to work in the fields, while the North used wage labor and machinery to fuel their factories. Last thing about life then versus life now, education. Few Americans in either the North or the South had more than a primary school education, uh, in 1870, the closest year I could find data for, roughly 20% of the 14 and older U.S. population were illiterate. Now, 99% of the population is at least somewhat literate, can read and write at least a remedial level. Despite what a lot of people post on the internet and how many people think that lizard Illuminati fearing David Icke is a visionary genius, overall, we actually are a lot smarter now than we were in 1860. Uh, now that you have a little taste of what life in the U.S. was like back then compared to now, let's go over the historical basics of the U.S. Civil War itself. We'll go over the war in greater detail in today's timeline. Uh, this is just a nice little primer to get our brains around the basics. 
The war was fought between the northern and southern states from 1861 to 1865. Uh, okay, let's move into that timeline now. Strap on those boots. Ha-ha! <laughs> JK! Gosh dang. That wasn't a primer. That was a, that was a sentence. Uh, the Civil War was fought between the United States of America, the North composed of 20 free states and four border states that had slaves but didn't initially secede. Delaware and Maryland never did join the Confederacy, despite being slave states. And on the other side was the Confederate States of America, a collection of 11 southern states that left the Union between 1860 and 1861. The first seven Confederate states were South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. And they were followed by Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina. The conflict began, pri- <clears throat> excuse me, primarily, wow, it came out of nowhere, uh, primarily as a result of the longstanding disagreement over the institution of slavery. We'll get more into that later on. On February 9th, 1861, Jefferson Davis, a former U.S. Senator and Secretary of War, was elected president of the Confederate States of America by the members of the Confederate Constitutional Convention. Uh, Jefferson Davis was not four foot six. Uh, he was five foot eleven. Bummer. I love thinking about a diminutive uh, Jefferson fuming uh, about a giant Lincoln. After four bloody years of conflict, the United States defeated the South, and in the end, the states that were in rebellion were readmitted to the U.S. and the institution of slavery was abolished nationwide. Uh, you probably know who the president of the United States was at that time, but in case you don't, it was Abraham Lincoln. He was not six foot nine; he was six foot four, same height as Lyndon B. Jumbo Johnson. You know who the third tallest U.S. president is? Uh, I, I didn't expect this. Donald Trump, six foot three. Wouldn't have guessed that for whatever reason. Uh, James Madison, the shortest at five foot four. Abraham Lincoln grew up in a log cabin in Kentucky. Uh, he worked as a shopkeeper and a lawyer before entering politics in the 1840s. He was lanky and for most of his youth actually did not have a sweet beard. Had a great jawline, actually, for real. Uh, beardless, honest Abe was a stud. And I have no idea what I'm talking about that. Uh, More relevant to today's suck than Lincoln's jawline was his slavery stance. Uh, He was against it. Alarmed by Lincoln's anti-slavery stance, the Southern states seceded soon after he was elected president in 1860. How about that? A lot of U.S. presidents have had to deal with some pretty serious shit while in office. But Lincoln may have started off his presidency with the most to deal with. Before he was even sworn in, damn near half the country was like, nope, uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, fuck that guy. We're out of here. Uh, Things are pretty polarized politically in America right now, but not like that. Lincoln declared that he would do everything necessary to keep the United States united as one country. They refused to recognize the Southern states as an independent nation, and the Civil War erupted in the spring of 1861. The fighting would be very intense. We'll delve into exactly how in today's timeline. Uh, Now let's fast forward a bit and talk about Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. On January 1st, 1863, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves in the areas of the country that shall then be in rebellion against the United States. So despite not being the president of the Confederacy, he declared Southern slaves uh, free. And slave owners living in Southern states, reading about that in their newspaper, probably did a lot of agitated paper rustling, a lot of, a lot of throat clearing. <clears throat> well, well, I never, the nerve of that Yankee fool, <clears throat> hubbub. Uh, The Emancipation Proclamation laid the groundwork for the eventual freedom of all slaves across the country. Lincoln won re-election in 1864 against opponents who wanted to sign a peace treaty with the Southern states and let them keep their slaves. Lincoln was a Republican and his primary Democratic opponent was Union General George B. McClellan. Lincoln ended up winning 55% of the popular vote and he crushed George in the electoral college vote, 212 to 21. Uh, McClellan wasn't just a Union General. 
Uh, for a while, he was the Union General, the fourth commanding general of the U.S. Army from November 1st, 1861 through March 11th, 1862, who led Union forces against General Lee in the Battle of Antium, a battle most historians believe McClellan won despite his army taking on more casualties than Lee's, since Lee's army retreated to end that fighting. Uh, McClellan had his critics, the main complaint about him being that he was too hesitant in the eyes of Lincoln and other politicians in D.C. of, uh, of engaging the Confederates in battle and also pursuing them when they would begin to retreat. But he was uh, a competent field commander. Uh, McClellan ran his campaign on a platform of continuing the war effort and doing a better job with it than Lincoln. He also was not as interested in Lincoln in abolition. He made it clear that he, quote, opposed forcible abolition is an object of the war or a necessary condition of peace and reunion. Interesting that had he won the election, the Civil War would have continued, but once won by the Union, slavery in the South would have continued. Uh, would that have led to another Civil War down the road? I have to think it would. How long would it have taken uh, to abolish slavery had McClellan won? Uh, McClellan would go on to be the 24th governor of New Jersey from 1878 to 1881, dying unexpectedly of a heart attack at age 58 in Orange, New Jersey. On April 14th, 1865, Lincoln was shot by assassin John Wilkes Booth, a Southern sympathizer. He died at 7.22 a.m. the next morning. For more on that, check out Suck 98, where we devote an entire episode to it. When word reached McClellan that his former presidential campaign rival had died, he was rumored to have said, <laughs> well, who's winning now, huh? All those electoral votes didn't help him plug that fucking hole in his head, did they? <laughs> Come on. Am I right or am I right, guys? Up top. Anyone? No? Oh, whatever. I thought it was, thought it was pretty clever. Uh, obviously, he did not say that. Uh, now we know a teeny bit about the Civil War. The next big question is, what caused it? In a word, unicycles. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, the South was formed. The North was against them. Some insults were tossed about. Some giggling and finger pointing went down. Some snickering. Uh, insults were overheard. Stuff like, get a bike like a real man. Uh, no, that's nonsense. Slavery. Slavery is why it started. We'll go into detail a bit later as to what specific events led up to the actual fighting. But the issue that divided the nation was definitely predominantly slavery. Slavery was concentrated mainly in the southern states by the mid-19th century, where slaves were used as farm laborers artisans, and house servants. There are various types of slavery around the world, and throughout history, the uh, chattel slavery, that's the word I was trying to come up with earlier, uh, chattel, was the most common form of slavery imposed in the U.S. This system, which allows people considered legal property to be bought, sold, and owned forever, was supported by the U.S. and European powers, and in various European territories and vassal states in North America and elsewhere around the world in the 16th through the 18th centuries. Chattel slavery formed the backbone of the largely agrarian Southern economy, while the North, again, was seeing the benefit of wage labor and the economic boom of industrialization. Many people in both the North and the South believed that slavery was immoral and wrong, yet the institution remained, which created a large chasm on the political and social landscape of the country. Some Southerners felt threatened by the pressure of Northern politicians and abolitionists, people like famed abolitionist hero John Brown, and they claimed that the federal government had no power to end slavery impose certain taxes, force infrastructure improvements, or influence Western expansion against the wishes of state governments. And they were wrong. The federal government does have the right to do all of that. In 1789, the Constitution granted the federal government the right to collect taxes, raise an army, other rights. Since then, its overall authority has unquestionably trumped state power. A lot of states have disagreed ever since. But at the end of the day, we are the United States of America, not the we'll do as we please and you can suck it if you don't like it, states of America. 
Overall, the feds can throw their weight around a bit more than the states can, and the South didn't like that. So they left. And then the feds were like, nah, nah, no, you don't get to leave. And they exerted federal power in the form of Northern aggression. Before the South split, there were numerous attempts at avoiding separation and maintaining the peace. There was the Missouri Compromise, U.S. federal legislation that admitted Maine to the United States as a free state, simultaneously with Missouri as a slave state, thus maintaining the balance of power between North and South in the U.S. Senate. As part of the compromise, the legislation prohibited slavery north of the 36 and 30-foot uh, parallel, excluding Missouri. The 16th United States Congress passed this legislation on March 3rd, 1820, and President James Monroe signed it on March 6th. There was also the Compromise of 1850. The Compromise of 1850 was made up of five bills that attempted to resolve disputes over slavery in new territories added to the U.S. in the wake of the Mexican-American War that lasted from 1846 to 1848. It admitted California into the Union as a free state, left Utah and New Mexico to decide for themselves whether to be slave states or free states, defined a new Texas-New Mexico boundary. Texas had already entered the U.S. as a slave state in 1845 and made it easier for slave owners to recover runaways under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. There was also the Kansas-Nebraska Act, an 1854 bill that mandated popular sovereignty allowing settlers of a territory to decide whether slavery would be allowed within their new state's borders for themselves. And there were many other pieces of legislation uh, passed to steer the country away from secession, away from war, and they would all fail. In the end, politicians on both sides of the aisle dug in their heels and the South seceded. The issue that most divided the U.S. for decades prior to the Civil War, unquestionably slavery, a war regarding slavery had been in the making since the U.S. had first become a country. Vermont abolished slavery the same year it declared independence from Britain, 1777, 14 years before it became a state. Pennsylvania abolished it in 1780. Uh, by the time the Revolutionary War ended in 1783, Massachusetts and New Hampshire, or New Hampshire, excuse me, had abolished slavery. Rhode Island, Connecticut quickly followed in 1784. The seeds for civil war were sown years before the Constitution was signed in 1787. As the pro- and anti-slave factions moved towards an inevitable confrontation, the ability to win the war appeared to tilt in the North's favor. Uh, the North had a lot more men, a lot more war material than the South. At the beginning of the Civil War, 22 million people lived in the North, 9 million people, nearly 4 million of whom were slaves, so really 5 million possibly pro-slavery people lived in the South. Huge difference. Had the South had a larger population, the war could have went in a very different direction. The North also had more money, more factories, more horses, more railroads, more farmland. On paper, all of these advantages made the U.S. Uh, much more powerful than the Confederate states. The main advantage the South had was fighting a war on their home court. They were fighting defensively on territory they knew very well. They also had the advantage of sheer geographical size of the Southern Confederacy. This meant that Northern armies would have to capture and hold vast quantities of land across the South to win. And that would create supply chain problems for the Union. If the South would have also been located in a much colder climate with more rugged geography, that also could have tilted the war in the Confederates' favor. Since they weren't, Union soldiers didn't have to face unforgiving winters like the Nazis did in Russia in World War II as they pushed further south. They also didn't have to navigate past steep mountain passes where they and their supplies could be easily ambushed. And yes, Southern meat sacks, I do know you have mountains. Beautiful mountains like the Appalachians, but the Appalachians... They ain't the Alps, but not the Rockies. An important geographical advantage in favor of the Confederacy also uh, was its Atlantic coastline. So many ports, so many places to get uh, needed goods for the war efforts from overseas merchants. 
Right, the South maintains some of the best ports in North America. New Orleans, Charleston, Mobile, Norfolk, Wilmington. This helped the Confederacy immensely in its efforts to mount a stubborn resistance. Despite most military advantages facing the North, two years into the war, it was still anybody's ballgame. The North were probably up a couple runs, points, touchdowns, goals, whatever other sports scoring reference you want to envision for sure, but people weren't leaving the stands just yet. And then Gettysburg happened. We'll go over plenty of battles today. Maybe none were as pivotal as the Battle of Gettysburg. It was the bloodiest battle of the war. By the time the uh, battle began on July 1st, 1863, the war had already fucked up the Confederate landscape and life in general pretty bad in the South. Uh, The presence of vast armies throughout the countryside meant that livestock, crops, other staples were being consumed quickly. In an effort to gather fresh supplies and relieve the pressure on the Confederate garrison at Vicksburg, Mississippi, Confederate General Robert E. Lee launched a daring invasion of the North in the summer of 63. He was defeated by Union General George George G. Meade, in a three-day battle near Gettysburg that left nearly 51,000 men killed, wounded, or missing in action. Lee's men were able to gather uh, the vital supplies. Uh, They also did little to draw Union forces away from Vicksburg, uh, which fell to federal troops on July 4th, 1863. And many historians mark the twin Union victories at Gettysburg and Vicksburg, Mississippi, as a major turning point in the Civil War. Uh, In November of 1863, President Lincoln traveled to the small Pennsylvania town and delivered the Gettysburg Address on the 19th, which expressed firm commitment to preserving the Union and went on to become one of the most iconic speeches in American history. I would like to recite it here. It's not that long. Uh, In his brief entirety, taking a few liberties to clarify, I think, what Lincoln must have really meant based on the laws of both his time and the laws of the Founding Fathers' time uh, he referred to. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And by all men, of course, I am speaking of just white men who own land and pay taxes since originally when this great nation was conceived, this small 6% of the overall population were the only citizens allowed to vote for many, many years. But that's neither here nor there uh, today. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it. Far above our poor power to add or detract, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And by people, I hope you do understand, I again mean men, since although black men will technically, legally, be allowed to vote in many places, when this is all said and done, women, white, black, and otherwise, will have to wait until 1920. Another 57 years before they can vote. 
My wife, Mary Todd, is greatly displeased by this notion, but she doesn't run my home. I do. I'm the man, and she will do as she's told. And also, when I said men a moment ago, I again really meant only white men, since segregation won't legally end for another 101 years, and there will be a whole heap of violent discrimination perpetrated against a variety of non-white ethnicities in the interim. Yes, going to have to wait over 100 years for that shit. But you get the gist of what I'm saying? This battle was important, and we're making some progress, damn it, and I'm doing my fucking best up here. I don't know why he was so Southern there. It's fun. It's more fun for me. Okay, now let's meet the Civil War's two most important historical figures outside of Lincoln: uh, Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, arguably the two most famous military personalities to emerge from the American Civil War. Ohio-born Grant, Virginia-born Lee. They wouldn't actually meet on the battlefield until well into the war in May of 1864. The two men had very little in common. Lee was from a well-respected first family of Virginia, with ties to the Continental Army and the founding fathers of the nation. Grant was a dirtbag. He's from a middle-class family with no political or family connections. Uh, both men graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, served in the U.S. Army prior to the Civil War, both also fighting in the Mexican-American War. Lee was offered command of the Federal Army, amassing in Washington in 1861, but he declined the command and threw in his hat with the Confederacy. He basically said that he couldn't fight against his people, the people of Virginia. So I find that very interesting. He was, he was offered control of the, the Union Army, and then he ended up with control of the Southern Army. The Southern Army. Uh, so clearly he had a he had a great military mind, respected by many. Uh, interesting fact about Lee, he would every battle he fought in the Civil War, he went up against a larger force and he won a lot of those battles. Uh, Lee's early war career got off to a rocky start, but he found his stride in June of 1862 after he assumed command of what he dubbed the Army of Northern Virginia. Grant, on the other hand, found early success in the war, but then was haunted by rumors of alcoholism later in the war. Uh, a famous Abraham Lincoln quote published as early as October 30th, 1863, and the New York Times about this said, when someone charged General Grant in the president's hearing, oh, this is, sorry, it's going to my voice again. Uh, when someone charged General Grant in the president's hearing with drinking too much liquor, Mr. Lincoln, recalling General Grant's successes, said that if he could find out what brand of whiskey Grant drank, he would send a barrel of it to all the other commanders. I love it. Who gives a shit how much he's drinking? He's doing a great goddamn job. If he needs a couple more sips of whiskey than the average fella, in order to lead his men properly into battle, then let him have his fucking whiskey. Hail Lucifina, I think. Maybe praise Bojangles for good measure. Uh, by 1863, these two men were the best generals on their respective sides. In March of 1864, Grant was promoted to lieutenant general and brought to the Eastern Theater of the War, where he and Lee engaged in a relentless campaign from May of 1864 to Lee's surrender at uh, Appomattox Courthouse 11 months later. Both these men suck worthy, so we won't dig into their lives a tremendous amount today. Would love to do a Ulysses S. Grant suck or a uh, Robert E. Lee suck at some point. After four years of conflict, Grant's Union Army took home the trophy. The major Confederate army surrendered to the U.S. in April of 1865. The North won. Uh, the war bankrupted much of the South, leaving its roads, farms, and factories in ruins. It all but wiped out a generation of men who wore the blue and gray. The Southern states were occupied by Union soldiers, rebuilt, gradually readmitted to the U.S. over the course of 20 very difficult years known as the Reconstruction Era. After the war was over, the Constitution was amended to free American slaves, assure equal protection under the law for American citizens, and to grant black men the right to vote. During the war, Abraham Lincoln's forces freed many slaves and allowed freedmen to join the Union Army as the U.S. colored troops. As the war drew to a close, but before the southern states were readmitted to the U.S., the northern states added the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. These amendments, also known as the Civil War Amendments. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. 
The 14th Amendment guaranteed that citizens would receive equal protection under the law, and the 15th Amendment granted black men the right to vote. Okay, so now we have an overview of the war, uh, you know, and I at least mention what caused the war slavery. Now let's look at some of the myths around what caused the Civil War. Surprisingly, a lot of meat sacks don't think the Civil War was primarily about slavery. Uh, Many believe in the lost cause myth. In 1866, a year after the war ended, an ex-Confederate named Edward A. Pollard published the first pro-Southern history version of the Civil War called The Lost Cause, a new Southern history of the war of the Confederates. And Pollard's book was followed by a torrent of similar propaganda. Soon the term Lost Cause perfectly described the South's collective memory of the war. All these works promoting the Lost Cause consoled Southern pride by echoing similar themes. The South's leaders had been noble. The South was not outfought, but merely overwhelmed. Southerners were united in support of the Confederate cause, and slavery was a benign institution overseen by benevolent, peaceful masters. A chief tenet of the lost cause was that secession had been forced on the South to protect states' rights. It wasn't about keeping slavery alive. Heavens no. It was about standing up to a tyrannical, power-hungry federal government trying to squash states' rights. Damn the feds. By 1890, the Lost Cause belief was extremely popular, and it grew even more popular until about 1950. And then advocates of the Lost Cause ran into a bit of a logic problem with their belief that the Civil War was mostly about standing up for states' rights in the 50s, when a lot of historical records were uncovered that exposed the truth. Damn facts. Ah, man, sucks when they get in the way. The Civil Rights Movement of the 50s and 60s prompted historians and teachers to review a ton of Civil War and pre-Civil War records and challenge the Lost Cause notion. And they came to the conclusion that the South's secession went against states' rights, not for them. On Christmas Eve, 1860, South Carolina, the first to leave the Union, adopted a declaration of the immediate causes which induce and justify the secession of South Carolina from the Federal Union. It listed South Carolina's grievances, including the exercise of northern states' rights, saying, We assert that 14 of the states have deliberately refused for years past to fulfill their constitutional obligations, and we refer to their own statutes for the proof. The phrase constitutional obligation sounds vague, but delegates went on to quote the part of the Constitution that concerned them, the Fugitive Slave Clause. They then noted an increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery. In many of these states, the fugitive is discharged from service or labor claimed. South Carolina also attacked New York for no longer allowing temporary slavery. In the past, Charleston Gentry, who wanted to spend a cool August in the North, could bring the the slaves along. Uh, By 1860, New York made it clear that it was a free state, and any slave brought there would become free. South Carolina was fucking pissed. Delegates were further upset at a handful of Northern states for letting African-American men vote. How, How dare they? How dare they exercise their own rights? Voting was a state matter at the time, so this should have fallen under the purview of states' rights. Nevertheless, Southerners outraged. They didn't like that the northern states weren't doing what they wanted to do uh, in their states on their own land. So they weren't in favor of states' rights. They were in favor of what they wanted, slavery. If they were in favor of states' rights, they would have been pissed at New York for not exam- you know, not allowing slavery inside its borders, but they would have understood. I get it. It's, it's their right. It's their state. It's, it's their choice. We do what we want here, and they do what we want there. Hooray for states' rights. Uh, delegates also took offense that northern states had denounced as sinful the institution of slavery and permitted open establishment of, among them of abolitionist societies. In other words, northern and western states should not have the right to let people assemble and speak freely. Not if what they say might threaten slavery. Other seceding states echoed South Carolina. 
Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world, proclaimed Mississippi. A blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. Northern abolitionists, Mississippi went on to complain, have nullified the fugitive slave law, broken every compact, and invested with the honors of martyrdom regarding John Brown, the radical abolitionist who tried to lead a slave uprising in Virginia in 1859. Uh, Once the Confederacy formed, its leaders wrote a new constitution that protected the institution of slavery at the national level, right? Giving more power to their own version of the federal government. So the the South uh, wasn't pissed about states' rights. It was pissed about slavery. Uh, As noted Civil War historian and the former director of programs at Virginia Tech's Virginia Center for Civil War Studies, William C. Davis has said, this all showed how little Confederates cared about states' rights, how much they cared about slavery. To the old Union, they had said that the federal power had no authority to interfere with slavery issues in a state. To their new nation, they would declare that the state had no power to interfere with the federal protection of slavery. Uh, Others have pointed to additional alleged causes of the Civil War. And they, got, and they all can be dispensed uh, with pretty fairly, uh, pretty quickly. Like the argument that tariffs and taxes also led to secession, right? It was these damn federal taxes that the South had to leave to, to protect its economic interests. High tariffs had been the issue in the 1831 nullification controversy, but not in 1860. About tariffs and taxes, the declaration of the immediate causes uh, said nothing when the South seceded because tariffs had been steadily decreasing for an entire generation. The tariff of 1857 under which the nation was functioning, had been written by a Virginia slave owner and was warmly approved by Southern members of Congress. Its rates were lower than at any point prior uh, in the century. So just prior to the Civil War, taxes were in a great place. Some say the election of Lincoln was the reason for secession, and that is true, but why? Because he was against slavery. So again, we come back to slavery. The South definitely went to war to keep slavery going, but did the North actually go to the war to end slavery? No. No, they did not. This is another common myth. The North went to war initially and primarily to just hold the nation together, not to free Southern slaves. That's an important difference. You know, so so get off your high horse, Yankees. Uh, Oh, wait, I'm a Yankee. Uh, I got to get off my high horse. Uh, Evidence shows that abolition became a bigger and bigger motivation as the war went on, but not in its early years. Uh, And there's proof. August 22nd, 1862, President Lincoln wrote a letter to Horace Greeley, abolitionist editor of the New York Tribune. And it stated, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it. uh, I do not believe it would help to save the Union. So Lincoln's own anti-slavery sentiment uh, was widely known this time. So widely known that it helped prompt the Southern states to rebel. Uh, In that same letter, he wrote, I have here stated my purpose according to my view of official duty, and I attend no modification of my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. So Lincoln was concerned, you know, uh, that making the war about abolition would anger Northern Unionists, many of whom cared little about African-Americans. He wanted to free them personally. But that wasn't his primary political motivation for the war. The whole notion of the North, you know, were the obvious good guys nobly fighting against slavery in the South, were the obvious villains hoping to keep Africans enslaved forever, is overly simplistic and just not true. Not all Southerners wanted to hold on to the institution of slavery. Not all Northerners gave a shit about the rights of African Americans. Just like we can't all agree on political candidates and political issues now, we couldn't back then either. Wealthy Southern landowners were in favor of slavery, of course. It helped them build their wealth. It helped keep them rich. 
But if you were some poor Southern white sharecropper, why the hell would you be in favor of slavery? The plantations are helping to keep you poor by not having to pay you a fair wage to farm because they're having someone else do it who doesn't get any wage. Some in the South didn't care about keeping slavery alive, and there were plenty in the North who didn't care about ending it. Segregation following the Civil War, not stopping at the Mason-Dixon line, proves that. Schools in the North were openly segregated. Shopkeepers and theaters displayed whites-only signs after the war. Even celebrities such as former Suck subject Josephine Baker, right, decades after, had a hard time finding hotel rooms and faced Jim Crow treatment in restaurants when they toured the North. So why did Lincoln push to free slaves towards the end of the war? Well, because by late 1862, it became clear that ending slavery in the rebelling states would definitely help the war effort. Whenever U.S. forces drew near, African-Americans flocked to their lines to help the war effort, to make a living, most of all, to be free. Some of Lincoln's generals helped him see early on that sending them back into slavery would just help the Confederate war cause. When it became obvious that freeing the slaves would help the Union win the war, unite the nation, then abolition became a primary motivation for the war of the North, uh, for the North. Uh, another important myth to squash regarding the Civil War was that thousands of African-Americans, both free and slaves, fought on the side of the Confederacy. Uh, Neo-Confederates have been making this argument since about 1980, and outside of a, a very small group of soldiers in their final weeks of the war, it's bullshit. One reason we know it's bullshit is the Confederate policy flatly did not let blacks become soldiers until March of, 19, or March of 1865. No documentation whatsoever exists for any black man being paid or pensioned as a Confederate soldier. There are some altered photos floating around that propel this myth. I looked into one altered photograph considered by many to be evidence of black Confederate soldiers. However, University of Virginia researchers found out it had been intentionally cropped and mislabeled. The photograph was of Union soldiers, not Confederate ones. Uh, white officers did bring slaves to the front, you know, for the Confederacy, where they were pressed into service. But doing laundry and cooking, some Confederate leaders did try to enlist African-Americans, but it was shot down. In January 1864, Confederate General Patrick uh, Cleburne, or Cleburne proposed filling the ranks with black men. When Jefferson Davis reportedly heard that suggestion, he rejected the idea, ordered that the subject be dropped and never brought up again. In the war's closing weeks, General Robert E. Lee was desperate for men. He asked the Confederate government to approve allowing enslaved men to serve in exchange for some form of post-war freedom. Uh, this time. The government gave in, but very few blacks signed up and the, and the war was soon over. And of course, very few signed up. I can't imagine any signing up who weren't either, you know, forced to do so by their owners or mentally ill. Why would you do that? I'm signing up for the war, baby. If those northern bastards win, we'll be free. Not on my watch. No, sir. What are we supposed to do with that freedom? Enjoy it? <laughs> Go to bed when we decide? Try and do something we actually might enjoy for work? No, thank you. You can take all that personal fulfillment and destiny ownership and shove it up your well-intentioned Yankee ass. Uh, another myth surrounding the Civil War is that slavery was on its way out. And had the war not been fought, it would have just soon ended anyway. Uh, no, slavery was hardly on its last legs in 1860 in the South. That year, the South produced almost 75% of all U.S. exports on the labor of nearly 4 million slaves. According to some historians, slaves were valued as being worth more than all of the manufacturing companies and railroads in the nation. No elite class in history has ever given up such an immense interest voluntarily. In 1860, slavery was actually growing more entrenched in the South, not going away. Unpaid labor made for big profits, and the Southern elite were growing ever richer. Slavery's institutional nature essentially crowded out other economic development and left the South dependent on agricultural society. Okay, so now we're almost to the timeline. 
uh, that will take us through key events leading directly to the Civil War and through the war itself, including oh so many battles. Before we do that, since we now know that the issue of slavery was the primary reason for the war, let's take a look at the history of slavery, uh, you know, in, in America and a little bit elsewhere, a little mini timeline slash overview before today's big timeline. Uh, the history of African chattel slavery in America complicated and tied to the larger transatlantic slave trade and, re- and requires a suck unto itself to properly understand. But we can learn a lot today here in a little bit. Uh, racial slavery didn't happen in the colonies overnight. It wasn't limited to the South. It was a slow, gradual process that started out with non-racial indentured servitude and through a little law here, a little legal precedent there, it morphed solidly into racial slavery directed towards Africans over roughly a century's time. Slavery in America started in 1619, the year before the Mayflower brought the pilgrims when the privateer, the White Lion, brought 20 African slaves ashore in the British colony of Jamestown, Virginia. The crew had seized the Africans from the Portuguese slave slave ship Sao João Batista. They were the first Africans seized by slave traders to arrive in one of the American colonies. Uh, but, they, but they would be indentured servitudes. They wouldn't be lifelong slaves. The African slave trade had started over 150 years earlier in 1444 with the first public sale of African slaves occurring in Lagos, or Lagos, Portugal. Uh, Portuguese, way into slavery. Uh, they also soon had Japanese and Chinese slaves, so they began trading with those nations. Also in the early years, most of uh, uh, their slavery was indentured servitude, and it was uh, not limited to foreigners. A wealthy Portuguese landowner could have white, Asian, and black indentured servants. The only group they wouldn't enslave was, uh, you guessed it, uh, Polish people. Uh, sometimes Polish would try to sneak themselves into slavery situations, and they would pretend to be some kind of white human. But the Portuguese would always be able to spot them, you know, because they'd be doing stuff like uh, like sweeping the floor, uh, using the handle end of the broom or or digging up seeds out of the ground instead of, you know, instead of planting them, you know, that kind of stuff. You get it. JK. Uh, 1455, Pope Nicholas V gave Portugal the rights to continue the slave trade in West Africa under the provision that they convert all people who are enslaved. Uh, good job, Pope. Very godly. The Pope just wants to let thou know that thy God is in favor of slavery. But thy slaves must be uh, must be Christian. If there's one thing that really chaps the God's ass, it is a pagan slave. Amen and carry on and so forth. Uh, yeah, but weird. The Pope's like, yeah, yeah, fucking go for it. 1482, the Portuguese start building, uh, you know, their first permanent slave trading post at Elmina Gold Coast, now Ghana. 1483, the Portuguese first forged a relationship with the African Kingdom of Congo. This relationship would soon lead to the large scale slave trading of the transatlantic uh, slave trade after Columbus discovered the Americas in 1492. Portuguese explorers aimed to spread Catholicism in Africa, colonize both people, land, and grow rich. Upon developing a trade deal with the Portuguese, the Congo king, Nakul, converted to Catholicism. After his death, his son and heir, King Nzinga Mabemba, took the name King Afonso I uh, and declared his kingdom a Catholic state, firmly bonding the two nations. And then in 1512, King Afonso I negotiated an agreement with the Portuguese giving them rights to African land and direct access to Congo's prisoners of war, who would be the first slaves sold specifically into the transatlantic slave trade. Also fair to point out that slavery was not new to Africa when the Portuguese began doing what they did. In African kingdoms, slavery had been around for centuries before this agreement. But it wasn't like what it would be in the American South a few centuries later. It was not permanent and it was not inherited. Children of slaves were not automatically enslaved. Uh, King Afonso's arrangement provided a, a model that other European nations in Western and Central African kingdoms would follow for centuries. The first people sold, again, we you know, mostly prisoners of war. African kings at this time, often in conflict, 
often uh, absorbing smaller nations or, you know, other groups into themselves. The vast ethnic, linguistic, and religious diversity in these kingdoms allowed for easily identifiable differences among groups, making it easier for kingdoms to sell their enemies in exchange for weapons and goods to expand and protect their territories. Grand empires such as the Congo, Yoruba, uh, Benin, uh, Asante, were vying for wealth and power in their regions, and Europeans were in need of laborers to build their colonies. So they made deals. Goods traded for people. And that wasn't new to Africa. People had been traded in the Middle East, in the Roman and Egyptian empires, and in many other civilizations going back to the earliest kingdoms we have records for. Uh, By 1619 again, when those first African slaves made it to Virginia, the transatlantic slave trade had been in existence for more than a century. As early as 1501, both Portugal and Spain began building up their young colonies in Brazil and Uruguay through slave labor. Other European colonizers soon followed. uh, Britain in the uh, 1550s, France in the 1570s, the Netherlands in the 1590s, and Denmark in the 1640s. In the 1500s, the Spanish were the first to bring enslaved Africans to North America as part of their colonization efforts in Florida and the Carolinas. By 1620, close to 520,000 captured and enslaved African men, women, and children had already been sold into chattel slavery by several European nations. The Spanish and Portuguese colonies alone accounted for approximately 475,000 enslaved people. By March 1620, 32 Africans were documented living in Virginia, 15 men and 17 women. The first American-born African likely was uh, either at Flower Dew 100 Plantation or at uh, Kaikotan, both nearby settlements on the James River. In 1624, the small African population shrunk to only 21. Uh, There is no record stating the official legal status of these first Africans in Virginia. By this time, a racial caste system had formed in the Portuguese and Spanish colonies. It's fair to presume that the English followed this custom. Uh, the most They most likely already saw these Africans as something more or less than indentured servants. The early 17th century is an odd period in the history of American slavery. The colonies were new, still trying to figure out how they wanted to be governed, how they would be different than other nations' colonies. Hard to ascertain exactly how racist they may have been uh, because there were racially mixed you know, unions. Uh, it seems that in many parts of colonial America in the early and mid-1600s, people of many different races did get along pretty well. Yes, there were battles with American Indians, but there was also peace and marriages with them as well. For many colonists, it was more about religion. If you were Christian, you were equal, mostly. You know, just like now, racist ideals varied from person to person. So why did racism tilt so hard in many areas uh, that it eventually turned into widespread plantation slavery? Uh, Money. Greed. The South grew into a plantation culture due to its soil and climate, and it was just cheaper to use slaves than it was to pay farmers. And African slaves were cheaper than European indentured servants. And due to the different color of their skin, easier to identify. But initially, again, the South didn't jump right into widespread African slavery. While racial slavery for sure already existed in other colonial territories, it did not exist the same way in American colonies. The first Africans were actually not seen as property. They didn't belong to white slave masters. They were indentured servants, no different than white indentured servants. There's a lot of proof of this. A woman named Angela was one of the captured Angolans who arrived in Virginia uh, in in 1619. Uh, She was listed in the 1624 census, living in Lieutenant William Pierce's home in Jamestown, along with three white indentured servants. In 1624, the first African baby uh, was likely born in the American colonies, William Tucker. Some of these first indentured servants worked on the Shirley Plantation, one of the oldest Virginia plantations established in 1613 on the banks of the James, uh, upriver from Point Comfort. The first enslaved Africans were documented there in 1622, the last in 1865. And some of those first slaves went on to become landowners in Virginia. 
right, and have their own indentured servants. Slavery wasn't yet racial in the colonies. Take the case of early colonist Anthony Johnson. This is super interesting. Johnson arrived in the colony of Virginia as Anglin slave, a.k.a. indentured servant, uh, or, you know, as in, as in Anglin slave, uh, born in Portuguese Angola, initially referred to in historical records as Antonio the Negro. In 1623, he met and married another African indentured servant named Mary, who had been brought to the same plantation as Anthony. Shortly after 1635, after working on a plantation, also as a merchant for many years at the Virginia Company, he earned his freedom, legally changed his name to Anthony Johnson. In 1647, he first entered the legal record as a free man when he purchased a calf. Johnson was granted a large plot of farmland by the colonial government after he paid off his indentured contract by labor. By uh, 1650, Anthony was one of only 400 Africans in the colony amongst nearly 19,000 settlers. In Johnson's own county, at least 20 African men and women were free, and 13 owned their homes. On July 24, 1651, he acquired 250 acres of land under the headright system by buying the contracts of five indentured servants, one of whom was his own son, Richard Johnson. The headright system that would eventually lead to widespread plantation slavery worked in a way that if a man were to bring indentured servants over to America, in this particular case, Johnson brought five, he was owed 50 acres a head, 50 acres a servant. The land was located on the great uh, Naswata Creek in Northampton County, Virginia. With his own indentured servants, Johnson ran his own tobacco farm. Randomly, one of his servants, John Casser, would later become the first African man to be declared indentured for life by a Virginia court in 1655. This was the first time in the young history of the 13 colonies that a man who had committed no crime was legally bound to servitude for life. 15 years earlier, in 1640, an African man named John Punch who had fled a Virginia plantation before his period of servitude uh, was up, actually fled with a couple of white dudes, had been made a servant for life as punishment. By the mid-17th century in Virginia, racism was settling in and slavery was changing. In 1662, the Virginia colony passed a law that children in the colony were born with the social status of their mother. If mom was a servant, baby was a servant. Two decades earlier in 1641, Massachusetts had become the first colony to legally recognize slavery as a lifelong condition. 1665, Anthony Johnson moved to Maryland, leased a 300-acre plantation where he died five years later. His widow Mary, in her will of 1672, distributed a cow to each of her grandsons, including John Jr., the son of John and Susanna Johnson. Five years later, when John Jr. purchased a 44-acre farm for himself, he named the homestead Angola, which suggests that his grandparents had been born in Africa and and, and they had kept alive stories of their homeland. Within 30 years... John Jr. died without an heir, and the entire Johnson family disappeared from colonial records. Back in Virginia that same year, a jury decided that land Johnson had left behind could be seized by the government because he was, quote, a Negro. A few decades later, in 1705, Virginia declared that all servants imported and brought in this country who were not Christians in their native country shall be slaves. A Negro, mulatto, Indian slaves shall be held as real estate. In the decades before the turn of the 18th century, therefore, the number of African arrivals began to increase. The situation of African-Americans became increasingly precarious and bleak. Sarah Driggis, an African-American woman who had been born free during the middle of the 17th century in Maryland, protested to a Maryland court in 1688 that she was now being regarded as a slave. The headright system began to increase slavery numbers immensely in parts of the colonies. The more slaves you had, the more land you received. And then when you had all that land, you needed more slaves to work it. 
And this system, you know, really entrenched African slavery in America over several decades. And then in the late 18th century, slavery went away in the North and the American cultural divide began. Between 1774 and 1804, all of the Northern states abolished slavery, but the so-called peculiar institution of slavery remained absolutely vital to the Southern economy. Also, while the transatlantic slave uh, reaches peak in the 1780s, a lot of educated people not making lots of money off slavery started to think, hey, wait a minute. Hey, this is wrong. Hey, it's actually not a good thing to force a human being to do, you know, whatever you fucking tell them and beat them when they don't do that for their whole life. Oh, okay, I get it. Uh, soon enough, you know, people started to realize, you know, more and more how morally wrong slavery was, and, and they were able to convince their governments to abolish it. 1787, the Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade founded in Britain. 1792, Denmark bans imports of its slaves to the West Indies colonies. 1807, Britain passes abolition of the Slave Trade Act, outlawing British Atlantic slave trade. The U.S. passes legislation banning it in uh, 1808, or it's effective in 1808. Uh, don't think this was noble, though. The U.S. Uh, banned the slave trade mostly because it didn't need to import slaves anymore because there were so many slaves in the States that anyone who had the money to buy one could do so because they were being bred by their owners and growing in numbers exponentially. The enslaved population in the U.S. nearly tripled over the next 50 years after the ban. In 1811, Spain abolishes slavery, including in its colonies. Uh, Cuba rejects the ban and continues to deal in slaves. Sweden bans slave trade in 1813. The Netherlands follows suit in 1814. Portugal kind of bans it in 1819. They ban it north of the equator. But when it came to the South American colonies, they were like, nah, fuck it. Let's keep it going. Come on, let's keep it going. Uh, Britain's anti-slavery society formed in 1823. Ten years later, Britain passes Abolition of Slavery Act, ordering gradual abolition of slavery in all British colonies. Great Britain and Spain signed a treaty prohibiting the slave trade. France bans it in 1826. 1846, the Danish governor proclaims uh, emancipation of slaves. Two years later, France does the same. In 1851, Brazil, largest importer of slaves, abolishes uh, slave trading. 1858, Portugal abolishes uh, slavery in its colonies. Kind of, again. Uh, they subject slaves to a 20-year apprenticeship after the ban. So really, they don't. Really, they're like, ah, slavery's over. You guys are free in, in 20 years. Ah, just stay where you are. Uh, 1861, the Netherlands abolished slavery in the Dutch Caribbean colonies. Slavery in the U.S., I guess, you know, would, of course, end with the Civil War. 1865, it wouldn't end in Cuba until 1886. Wouldn't end in Brazil until 1888. Uh, in 1948, the United Nations General Assembly adopts Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, stating no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Slavery in the slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms. And now today, 2020, uh, while plantation slavery has been dead and gone for well over a century around the world, there are actually more slaves in the world now than there were in the 1850s and 1860s. How crazy is that? Modern slavery actually has more slaves currently working than at any time during the transatlantic era. Uh, an estimated 40.3 million people victims of modern slavery, according to a study in 2016. A quarter of them, children. The figures from the UN's International Labor Organization and the Walk Free Foundation shows 24.9 million people across the world trapped in forced labor, 15.4 million in forced marriages last year. Uh, children account for 10 million of the overall 40.3 million total. Uh, and when I say last year, this is um, going back to uh, uh, 2015. The 2017 estimates of modern slavery report calculates that of 24.9 million victims of forced labor, 16 million are thought to be in the private economy, 4.8 million in forced sexual exploitation, 4.1 million state-sponsored forced labor. 
including mandatory military conscription, agricultural work. Uh, According to the new global estimates, modern slavery is most prevalent in Africa, followed by Asia and the Pacific. Women and girls account for 71% or 29 million of all modern slavery victims in 2016. Uh, Researchers found that more than 70% of the 4.8 million victims of sex trafficking uh, were in the Asia and Pacific region, while forced marriage was found to be most prevalent across African countries. So still different kinds of slavery happening. Not as severe as plantation slavery usually. Thank God, but still a major problem. Now back to the transatlantic slave trade for just a quick few more facts. And then we head to the timeline. Between 1525, 1866, and the entire history of the slave trade to the new world, according to the transatlantic slave trade database, 12.5 million Africans were shipped to the new world. Some records go as high as 25 to 30 million. 10.7 million survived the dreaded Middle Passage, disembarking in North America, the Caribbean, and South America. Slaves brought to the United States represented about 3.6% of the total number, uh, 388 to 600,000 people, considerably less than the number transported to colonies in the Caribbean, including more than 1.2 million to Jamaica alone, or to Brazil, which had almost 5 million fucking Portuguese. Uh, of those Africans who arrived in the U.S., nearly half came from two regions, Senegambia, the area comprising the Senegal and Gambia rivers and the land between them, or today's Senegal, Gambia, uh, Guinea-Bissau, uh, Mali, the West Central Africa uh, region of now Angola, Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Gabon, the Gambia River running from the Atlantic into Africa uh, was a key waterway for the slave trade at its height. About one out of every six West African slaves came from that area. In addition to nearly 50% of the total number of enslaved Africans in the U.S. from the, these two regions, a considerable number of slaves had their origins in the so-called Slave Coast, now the West African nation of Ghana, as well as neighboring parts of the Windward Coast, now Ivory Coast. Others originated in the Bight of Biafra, including parts of present-day eastern Nigeria and Cameroon, an inlet uh, of the Atlantic on Africa's western coast. Okay, okay, I think that is uh, enough uh, for today on the slave trade. Probably stayed on it too long. It needs its own suck, so much history. Just wanted to give a good overview today of what happened since slavery was why the Civil War was fought. Now we know how slavery arrived in North America alongside the Spanish and English colonists of the 17th and 18th centuries. We also know that slavery didn't show up immediately with the colonists, not in lifelong form. No, it it slowly sunk in. Support for it actually went back and forth in the early years. The British colony of Georgia actually banned slavery from 1735 to 1750 although it remained legal in, other, in, in the other 12 colonies. And then as the American colonies became a nation, slavery divided that nation. After the American Revolution, Northern states one by one passed emancipation laws and the sectional divide began. Began to open as the South became increasingly committed to slavery. Once called a necessary evil by Thomas Jefferson, proponents of slavery seeking to morally justify their economic interest in it switched their rhetoric to one that describes slavery as a benevolent Christian institution that benefited all parties involved, slaves, slave owners, and non-slave holding whites. Uh Uh-huh, benevolent my ass. Good old rationalization. Man, we meat sacks are really good at rationalizing a lot of terrible shit. Okay, now uh, let's dig into the timeline, going over a few key events that lead directly to the war, and then we'll spend a good long while on the war itself uh, right after a a very quick sponsor break here. Uh, Today's episode of Time Suck is brought to you once again by Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium, Tax shop and saddlery. Howdy, partners and pony riders. This is your good buddy Tom Anderson, aka Captain Whiskerhorn. 
I continue to be your trusted source of sexy bits, bridles, harnesses, halters, hooves, masks, anal plug tails, just like I've been here in the Quad State area for the past 20 years. Last week's sale was not enough. Don Doberman, owner-proprietor of Dog on Dog's Puppy Play Megastore, Butt Dungeon and Kennel, continues to wage a relentless smear campaign against my very livelihood. I gave you 20% off. All pony play gear, including carrot balls, spurs, submission whips, hobbles, collars, polos, stud chains, tongue ties, for proof of taking your puppy play items back to Don for full refunds. And then that son of a bitch bought a billboard just before the Wilmington Avenue exit and put a Photoshop picture of my wife pony, Sasparilla Spunkmaster. Wearing puppy play gear, not pony play gear. And it said, never trust a man who can't control his mare. It said, come in for 40% off all chew toys, puppy masks, tail butt plugs, strap-on dog dicks, spike collars, leashes, and more. Well, doggone damn it, this is war now. I'm cracking my pony whip, digging in my spurns that I'm fighting back. Doggone Don Doberman might give you a sale, but can't he give you a show like Captain Whiskerhorn? This week, only at Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium, Tax Shop, and Saddlery, we have a pony play and anal fisting seminar put on by the world's only paranormal puppet and his handler, Woody and Charles Gutman. Ha-ha, <laughs> everybody! Bet you didn't expect to hear from me in this particular situation. The ghost rape repelling business is down along with the world economy, and all my other business ventures have failed miserably, and well, as a puppet, I'm used to having a hand in my ass anyway, and if I have to also throw a saddle on Charles and ride and whip him while he bites down on a bridle, then so be it. So come on down, I guess, and watch me spank and whip Mr. Gutman. Well, he puts a hand inside me and we have a few drinks and whatever brings you into business and whatnot. My God, I've, I've hit rock fucking bottom. <laughs> and that is not our real sponsor because we don't actually live inside my head, unfortunately. God, if only. It'd be so much weirder if it was if that was reality. A uh, real sponsor break now. Thank you, Meatsacks, again for continuing to access our sponsor deals. It saves you money and it keeps our sponsors sponsoring us. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. 
It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. And now, let's get to that TIMESUCK timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. Start in 1803. That sound good? Uh, in the growth years following the 1803 Louisiana Purchase, Congress was compelled to establish a policy to guide the expansion of slavery into the new Western Territory. Missouri's application for statehood as a slave state sparked a bitter national debate. In addition to the deeper moral issue posed by the growth of slavery, the addition of pro-slavery Missouri legislators uh, would give the pro-slavery faction a congressional majority in Washington, D.C., and abolitionists feared it would turn all of America into a slave nation. And can you imagine the stress of being an African-American citizen living in a northern state thinking about that shit? Wait, 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 what? What did you say? 
this could be a pro-slavery majority in Congress. The whole country could be pro-slavery. Hey, how, how far away is Canada? I'm thinking I might need to explore some additional options right now. Truly can't imagine that. It feels uh, strange to be told right now to shelter in place. I can't imagine how it would feel if it looked like your government might soon pass legislation that would make you and your family slaves. That shit is insane. I mean, imagine if Trump during one of his press conferences just snuck that in there. So I'm going to let the governors decide when it's best to reopen their states. They're, they're very talented people, very capable. We have the best governors of any governors in the world. And also thinking about legalizing slavery. No more questions. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, what was that? Hey, wait, hey, what was that last part? What was that last thing you said? Uh, and I know I do a shitty Trump uh, impression. Ultimately, Congress reached a series of agreements that became known as the Missouri Compromise in 1820. Mentioned that a bit, you know, earlier. Missouri was admitted as a slave state. Maine admitted as a free state, preserving the congressional balance. Line was drawn through the unincorporated Western territories along the 36 and 30 foot parallel, dividing North and South as free and slave. A 77 year old Thomas Jefferson, when he heard about this deal, said that he considered it at once as the knell of the union. It is hushed indeed for the moment, but this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. A geographical line coinciding with a marked principle, moral and political, once conceived and held up to the angry passions of men, will never be obliterated. And every new irritation will mark it deeper and deeper. Back in 1820, Jefferson knew that the Civil War was coming. Now let's talk about Nat Turner's rebellion. August of 1831, a slave named Nat Turner incited an uprising that spread through several plantations in Southern Virginia. Turner and approximately 70 cohorts killed around 60 white people. Uh, the deployment of military infantry and artillery uh, suppressed the rebellion after two days of terror. Uh, 55 slaves, including Turner, were tried and executed for their role in the, in, in the, insurre in the insurrection. Uh, Turner himself avoided capture for six weeks. Before being hanged, he was asked if he regretted what he had done, and he said, was Christ not crucified? Dude was a fucking badass. Fought and died for what he thought was right, what he knew was right, uh, what was right. Uh, nearly 200 more slaves were lynched by frenzied mobs in the aftermath of this rebellion. Although small-scale slave upri uprisings were fairly common in the American South, Nat Turner's rebellion was the biggest and the bloodiest. Virginia lawmakers reacted to the crisis by rolling back what few civil rights slaves and the odd black free person had, you know, someone freed by their owner. Uh, education was now prohibited, and the right to assemble was severely limited. These restrictive laws further angered northern abolitionists who would now fight harder to free southern slaves. In 1846, the Wilmot Proviso was a piece of legislation proposed by Pennsylvania Congressman David Wilmot at the close of the Mexican-American War. If passed, the Proviso would have outlawed slavery in territories acquired by the United States as a result of the war, which included most of the Southwest and extended all the way to California. Uh, Wilmot spent two years fighting for this plan. He offered it as a writer on existing bills. He introduced it to Congress as his own bill, tried to attach it to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. All attempts failed. Nevertheless, the intensity of the debate surrounding the proviso uh, prompted the very first serious discussion of secession. With national relations soured by the debate over the Wilmot proviso, Senators Harry, Henry Clay and Stephen Douglas managed to broker a shaky accord with the Compromise of 1850. Mentioned that one earlier as well. That compromise admitted California as a free state, did not regulate slavery in the remainder of the Mexican session, all while strengthening the Fugitive Slave Act a law which compelled Northerners to seize and return escaped slaves to the South. While the agreement succeeded in postponing outright hostilities between the North and South, it did little to address and in some ways even reinforced the disparity that divided the nation. 
the new Fugitive Slave Act by essentially forcing non-slaveholders to participate in the institution of slavery led to increased tension among citizens. Another piece of the secession puzzle came from a book. In 1852, Connecticut abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe's fictional exploration of slave life, Uncle Tom's Cabin, was a cultural sensation. Northerners felt as if their eyes had been opened to the true horrors of slavery, while Southerners protested that Stowe's work was slanderous. Uncle Tom's Cabin was the second best-selling book in all of America in the 19th century, second only to the Bible. Right Outside of the Bible, no book sold more copies than Uncle Tom's Cabin during, ni- during the 19th century uh, in all of the United States. Its popularity brought the issue of slavery to life for those few who remained unmoved after decades of legislative conflict and further widened the division between the North and South. By the mid-1850s, the tensions between the two were reaching a bowling point. On March 20th, 1854, the Republican Party was founded, a new party with strong abolitionist leanings. John C. Fremont, American explorer, military officer, and senator, ran as the first Republican nominee for president in 1856. Behind the slogan, free soil, free silver, free men, Fremont and victory. That's a pretty good fucking slogan. Uh, Although Fremont's bid was unsuccessful, the party showed a strong base. Also in 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act established Kansas and Nebraska as territories, set the stage for bleeding Kansas by its adoption of popular, popular sovereignty, Under popular sovereignty, it is the residents of the territories who decide by popular referendum if the state is to be free or enslaved. Settlers from both the North and the South poured into Kansas, hoping to swell the numbers on their side of the debate. Passions were inflamed, violence raged. In the fall of 1855, abolitionist John Brown came to Kansas to fight the forces of slavery. In response to the sacking of Lawrence by border ruffians from Missouri, whose sole victim was an abolitionist printing press, Brown and his supporters killed five pro-slavery settlers in Kansas in May 1856. This attack launched a guerrilla war between pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces. Although the violence was often sporadic and unorganized, mass feelings of terror now existed in that territory. President Buchanan tried to calm the violence by supporting the Lecompton Constitution in 1857, one of four proposed constitutions for the state of Kansas. It was drafted by pro-slavery advocates, included provisions to protect slaveholding in the state, and to exclude free blacks from its Bill of Rights. And this pissed off, obviously, anyone in America who was against slavery. The violence in Kansas had subsided in 1859 when warring parties forged a fragile peace, but not before more than 50 settlers had been killed. In 1857, another important part of the lead-up to the Civil War occurred, the case of Dred Scott versus Sanford. Uh, Dred Scott was a Virginia slave who tried to sue for his freedom in court. The case eventually rose to the level of the Supreme Court, where the justices found that as a slave, Dred Scott was a piece of property that had no legal rights or recognitions normally afforded to a human being. The Dred Scott decision threatened to entirely recast the political landscape and ha- uh, that had thus far managed to prevent civil war. The Supreme Court upholding the view of slaves as mere property made the federal government's authority to regulate the institution much more ambiguous. Then came the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858. Southerners renewed their challenges to the agreed-upon territorial limitations on slavery and polarization intensified. In 1858, Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas faced a challenge for his seat from a relatively unknown one-term former congressman and prairie lawyer, Abraham Lincoln. In the campaign that followed, Lincoln and Douglas engaged in seven public debates across the state of Illinois where they debated the most controversial issue of the antebellum era, owning people. Although Douglas won the Senate race, these debates propelled Lincoln to the national spotlight and enabled his nomination for president in 1860. 
In contrast, these debates further alienated Douglas from the Southern wing of the Democratic Party and the pro-slavery arguments Douglas made in these debates came back to haunt him in 1860, uh, destroying his presidential chances. Douglas had argued that the U.S. should and could continue to be a nation of both slave states and non-slave states. And then came John Brown's raid in 1859. Abolitionist John Brown supported violent action against the South to end slavery and played a major role in starting the Civil War. After the Potawatomi uh, massacre during Bleeding Kansas when those five settlers were killed, Brown returned to the North, plotted a far more threatening act. On October 1859, he and 19 supporters, armed with Beecher's Bibles, led a raid on the Federal Army, Armory and Arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, in an effort to capture and confiscate the arms located there, then distribute them amongst local slaves and begin an armed insurrection. Wolverines! We talked about this raid in the Harriet motherfucking tub and suck. John Brown doing this shit at the age of 59. It's like he was one of the expendables long before that action movie franchise obviously came out. A small force of U.S. Marines led by Colonel Robert E. Lee put down John Brown's uprising. There were casualties on both sides. Seven people were killed and at least 10 more were injured before Brown and seven of his remaining men were captured. And then on October 27th, Brown was tried for treason against the state of Virginia, convicted and hanged in Charlestown on December 2nd. This was big front page headline national news. And it once again kept the notion of slavery on everyone's minds. A white man from the North willing to die, willing to kill to free black slaves. Uh, John wrote a note in his cell before leaving for the gallows. It said, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. On his way to the gallows, he paused to kiss a black baby. More than a thousand troops lined the field where Brown was hanged to protect the gallows from people trying to free him. There was fear that rebels might rush in at the last minute and try and rescue him before his execution. Confederate General Thomas Stonewall Jackson, then a philosophy professor, was standing near the gallows and wrote a letter to his wife about Brown's final moments. This is intense. He wrote, he behaved with unflinching firmness. Brown had his arms tied behind him and ascended the scaffold with apparent cheerfulness. After reaching the top of the platform, he shook hands with several who were standing around him. The sheriff placed the rope around his neck, then threw a white cap over his head and asked him if he wished a signal when all should be ready, to which he replied that it made no difference, provided he was not kept waiting too long. Motherfucker died with dignity, with integrity. Man, I teared up reading Jackson's letter the first time. So brave. My God, in the face of his own death. Hope I can face my own death someday like that. Man, hail Nimrod. John Brown of heaven is real and ain't worth a shit if you're not in it. Hope you're having a drink up there with Nat Turner. A few months later, 1860, the Republicans ran their second candidate for president, Honest Abe. His election would directly push the South to secede. Abraham Lincoln was elected by considerable margin in 1860, despite not even being included on many Southern ballots. That's how much he was despised down South. As a Republican, his party's anti-slavery outlook, of course, struck fear into many Southerners. On December 20th, 1860, a little over a month after the polls closed, after many long talks by state politicians, South Carolina seceded from the Union, started the secession into the Confederacy. With secession, several federal forts, including Fort Sumner in South Carolina, became outposts in a foreign land. How strange. Abraham Lincoln made the decision to send fresh supplies to the beleaguered garrisons, which now lay technically on foreign soil. And then on April 12th, 1861, the first shots of the war are fired. Confederate warships turned back the supply convoy to Fort Sumner and opened a 34-hour bombardment on the stronghold. The garrison surrendered on April 14th. The Battle of Fort Sumner, 
Uh, least bloody battle of the war. No one was killed, but the Civil War was now underway. On April 15th, Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers to join the Northern Army, unwilling to contribute troops. Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee dissolved their ties to the federal government. Now let's back up just a tiny bit before jumping back to April 15th. February 18th, 1861, Jefferson Davis is appointed the first president of the Confederate States of America in Montgomery, Alabama, a position he will hold, right, throughout the war. Uh, you know, and, uh, there'll be elections, but then he's just, you know, still in charge. Uh, Davis, 53, had previously been a U.S. senator from Mississippi, a U.S. congressman from Mississippi, and the secretary of war under President Franklin Pierce. He also fought in the Mexican-American War and in battles against American Indians, achieving the rank of first lieutenant colonel. Davis would be pardoned in his involvement in the war after the Civil War was over. And although he would live until 1889, he never changed his staunch pro-slavery beliefs. He became a big supporter of the Lost Cause movement we talked about earlier. He held on to the belief that Southern secession was constitutional and that the white man was the natural master to the black man until his dying day, which I guess isn't surprising. You don't become the president of the Confederacy by being kind of racist, right? (laughs) Right. All right, everyone's down to the Jefferson and Tommy. Well, who's going to be the president of the Confederacy? Jefferson, at this very moment, has many a slave working on his Mississippi plantation, and he has no plans to give any of them a vacation anytime soon. (laughs) If you hear what I'm... He believes to the depths of his soul that God Almighty wants the white man to have total dominion over the black man's mind, body, and very soul. He loves the South. He hates the Yankees. And everyone in his family is as white as freshly clean sheets. Now we have Tommy. Tommy also loves the South. Born and raised in Alabama. Loves hog hunting. Loves a good squirrel stew. He goes six generations deep around these parts, and he hates Yankees. He doesn't have any slaves, though. Uh, He has two children whose skin remains a little more tan during the winter months than is normal for folks of European descent, if you take my meaning. He doesn't understand why we can't just pay people to work on the plantations and let people live their own lives on their own time when he's rumored to have a secret common-law wife as dark as midnight. Uh, I made up the stuff about Tommy. Did not make up the stuff about Jefferson Davis. He was way into slavery. Uh, He must have been at least half Portuguese. Now we're back to April 15th. This is when President Lincoln issues a public declaration that an insurrection exists, you know, calls for those 75,000 militia uh, troops. On May 3rd, Lincoln puts out an additional call for 43,000 more volunteers to serve for three years, expanding the size of the regular army. May 24th, Union forces cross the Potomac River, occupy Arlington Heights, uh, the home of future Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Uh, Robert E. Lee lived less than five miles from D.C., and in some ways, he might as well have lived on another planet. How strange right, to be a slave living across a river from a free land. I wonder if that would be better or worse than living deep in the South, where it would be harder to realistically entertain the possibility of escaping. It's during the occupation of nearby Alexandria when Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, 24-year-old commander of the 11th New York Infantry and close friend of the Lincolns, is shot dead by the owner of the Marshall House just after removing a Confederate flag from its roof. Very early casualty of the war, if not the first. A skirmish near uh, Philippi. Philippi? Ah, I didn't get pronunciation guides for all these. I thought I did. There's just so many of these words. I'm like, eh. A skirmish near uh, Phil uh, I, PPI, in Western Virginia on June 3rd is the second clash of Union and Confederate forces. The Union would later refer to this as the, uh, again, however you say this word, uh, Philippi, Philippi races. Fucking stupid town names. I fucking hate them. Uh, due to the largely untrained Confederates fleeing the battlefield after little resistance. Why can't more towns be named like Idaho towns? New Meadows, McCall, Riggins, right? Easy to say. Well, I guess Coeur not easy. 
Never mind. <laughs> okay. Uh, to be fair to the Confederates, they were outnumbered 3,800 in this uh, battle. Four Union soldiers were either killed or wounded compared to 26 Confederates. June 10th, 1861, there was the Battle of Big Bethel, the first land uh, battle of the war in Virginia. 3,500 Union troops versus 1,400 Confederates. Union forces suffered 76 casualties with 18 killed, including Major Winthrop and Lieutenant John T. Grebel, first regular Army officer killed in the war. June 20th, West Virginia became the only state to form because of the Civil War. Faced with what they considered an overbearing and neglectful state government, after years of simmering resentment towards their eastern neighbors, citizens in the mountainous western regions of Virginia refused to take part in secession. Most people in West Virginia were poor, lived in the mountains, weren't living on plantations, and they weren't interested in fighting for wealthy plantation owners who had never done anything for them, so they formed their own state. They bounced. July 21st, the Battle of Bull Run fought near uh, Manassas, Virginia. The Union Army of approximately 28,400 troops under General Erwin McDowell initially succeeds in driving back Confederate forces under General Pierre Beauregard and his 21,900 men. But the arrival of 8,900 troops under General Joseph E. Johnston initiates a series of reverses that send McDowell's army in a panic retreat to the defenses of Washington. It is here that Thomas Jonathan Jackson receives everlasting fame as Stonewall Jackson. Jackson had organized a defense of a battlefield position known as Henry Hill, bolstered by artillery. McDowell had also ordered more infantry and artillery to Henry Hill, where the fiercest fighting of the new war occurred. Uh, McDowell's men couldn't take the hill because Jackson held his ground on it, quote, like a stone wall. So that, now you know that. Uh, McDowell's 28,400 men suffered 480 killed, 1,000 wounded, 1,200 missing, for a total loss of 2,680 casualties approximately 9.5%. Beauregard and Johnson's combined force of 30,800 had 390 killed, 1,600 wounded, about a dozen missing, a total of approximately 2,000 or 6.5%. It's the first major battle of the war and the first that the South wins. And, uh, and it had to have made Honest Abe a bit nervous, right? This wasn't going to be easy. North might have more numbers, but the South was going to put up a hell of a fight. After this battle, worried the Confederates will storm and sack D.C., a series of earthworks and forts are engineered to surround the capital, adding protection already offered by active posts such as Fort Washington on the uh, Potomac River. I hope I'm saying that one right. I'm nervous in my head. Is it Potomac? I think it's Potomac. Uh, August 10th uh, marks the Battle of Wilson's Creek in Missouri. This battle is sometimes called the Bull Run of the West. The Union Army under General Nathaniel Lyon attacked Confederate troops and state militia southwest of Springfield, Missouri, after a disastrous day that included the death of Lyon, they're thrown back. In this battle, it is the Union Army that is seriously outnumbered, 12,120 to 5,430. Casualties for both sides would be about the same, just over 1,300 for the Union, just over 1,200 for the Confederates. Now Abe really worried. His forces are 0-2. On August 28th, 29th, the Union punches back. Fort Hatteras. At Cape Hatteras, North Carolina falls to Union naval forces. This begins the first Union efforts to close southern ports along the Carolina coast. There are less than 30 casualties in the skirmish total, but the North takes almost 700 Southerners as prisoners of war. On September 13th, the week-long First Battle of Lexington, Missouri, also known as the Battle of the Hemp Bales, or the Siege of Lexington, begins. 15,000 Confederates completely overwhelm 3,500 Union soldiers, killing, wounding, or capturing them all. Another major Confederate victory, and the South takes Lexington. October 21st, the Battle of Ball's Bluff, Virginia, happens. 50-year-old Colonel Edward D. Baker, senator from Oregon, friend of President Lincoln, leads troops across the Potomac River, only to be forced back at the river's edge where he is killed. It's unreal to me. Uh, I, I love a lot of these guys. You know, they're a little older. 
50-year-old senator leading troops into battle out in the trenches. You know, not a member of the, the military while he's in the Senate, you know. Uh, he gets shot down waiting for a boat to cross the river. Can you imagine like a, any 50-plus-year-old U.S. senator grabbing a gun and just heading into battle anywhere today? The average person had to be so much tougher back then. Senator working on legislation one day, you know, sitting in a comfy office. He's out getting shot, you know, shot out by the river the next day. Getting, getting shot and hit. Uh, the ensuing Union withdrawal turns into a route with many soldiers drowning while trying to recross the icy waters of the Potomac River. More than half the Union force becomes casualties. The Confederates, you know, suffer only 36 killed, 117 wounded, three captured. And that will be the last major fighting of 1861. In the first year of the war, South kicking the Union's ass. I wonder if Abraham Lincoln ever thought something the first year like, holy shit, this sucks. Could not have had a worse your first year in office. Just fucking shoot me already. You get it. Uh, on January 9th, 1862, the Battle of Mill Springs is fought in Kentucky. It's the first significant Union victory of the war. The Union victory weakens the Confederate hold in the state. Union losses, 39 killed, 207 wounded. Confederates, 125 killed, 404 wounded or missing. The Battle of Mill Springs, along with the Battle of Middle Creek on January 10th, break the main Confederate defensive line that had anchored in eastern Kentucky. And yes, another battle had been fought a few days before. Not going to list all of the battles again this timeline. Way too many. Uh, the Civil War, again, consisted of uh, nearly 10,500 battles. Way too many numbers to go over in one podcast and still keep it interesting. Uh, February 6th, the South surrenders Fort Henry, Tennessee. The loss of the Southern Fort on the Tennessee River opens the door to Union control of the river south of the Alabama border. In the days following the fort's surrender from February 6th through February 12th, Union raids used ironclad boats to destroy Confederate shipping and railroad bridges along the river. Ironclad boats, big deal. They were steam-propelled warships protected by iron or steel armored plates, uh, making them a hell of a lot harder to sink than wooden warships, and they'd only been around for a little over two years. The first one launched by the French Navy in November of 1859, and early Civil War skirmishes were the very first time they were used in battle. Uh, two days later, the Battle of Roanoke Island, North Carolina, is fought and unfortunately has nothing to do with, you know, very creepy fictional spiders. A Confederate defeat, the battle results in Union occupation of eastern North Carolina and control of Pamlico Sound to be used as a northern base for further operations against the southern coast. The official Union losses were tallied at 37 killed, 214 wounded, 13 missing. Confederate losses, just 22 killed, 58 wounded. However, 2,500 Confederates surrender. Things have definitely tilted back in the Union's favor to kick off 1862. Just a week after capturing Tennessee's Fort Henry on February 16th, Union Brigadier General Ulysses Grant begins his assault on nearby Fort Donelson on the Cumberland River, key gateway to the Confederacy. More ironclad boats. Dude had a secret weapon to beat on the Confederates with. The Union would use over 50 of these ironclads in the war, almost twice as many as the Confederacy at any given time. After Confederate forces under Brigadier General John Floyd failed to break through Grant's lines, the Confederates surrender the fort, giving the Union another major victory. The Chicago Tribune proclaims the battle as one of the most complete and signal victories in the annals of the world's warfare. So they're, they're pretty pumped about it. You know, they are a Northern paper. Uh, it was here that Union General Ulysses S. Grant gained his nickname, Unconditional Surrender. General Floyd had turned over his command to General Simon Bolivar Buckner before the end of the battle, and he and other Confederate officers escaped. And then General Buckner hoped for a negotiated surrender, you know, where you get to negotiate terms, kind of like a plea deal. You know, maybe you, you hand over all your arms, but you get to avoid being taken as a prisoner of war. You get to go home, something like that. General Buckner expected to get this from Grant because uh, it was uh, custom, and they had known each other for decades. This, this war was so weird that way. Right? It was friends fighting friends. They were a year apart in age. Buckner was 38. Grant was 39. 
They'd went to West Point together. They'd served together in the U.S. Army during the Mexican-American War. When Grant was struggling in his post-Army pre-Civil War days, Buckner had actually loaned him money once uh, during a particularly low period in Grant's life. And then Grant refused to negotiate a surrender, forced Buckner to either fight and die or surrender unconditionally with no assurances of what would happen to him and his men, and Buckner never forgave him for it. And interestingly, at Fort Donaldson, Tennessee, Buckner became the first Confederate general of the war to surrender an army. And then a few years later, after he became a prisoner of war, and the South traded another prisoner of war for his release, and he fought again. In New Orleans, in 1865, he became the last Confederate general of the war to surrender an army. I'm sure he loved having that kind of trivia associated with him. Dude would live all the way until 1914. <laughs> Damn near 50 years after the war, 50 years of hearing people say shit like, hey, hey, wait a minute. Aren't you the guy that lost, uh, uh, wait, wait, no, 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 you, you surrendered an army for the first time in the Civil War. Oh, and the last time. No way. You're like the king of surrenders. That's too funny. You know, growing up when one of my friends and I were roughhousing and, we, and one of us would give up, we would yell, ah, Buckner, ha, I Buckner, I Buckner. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, Grant's victory made him famous. It ensured that Kentucky would remain in the union, helped open Tennessee to future union advances. February 22nd, Jefferson Davis is inaugurated as president of the Confederate States of America. Poor Tommy is devastated. Gosh dang. I would made a good old gosh dang gosh darn Southern president. On March 7th and 8th, the Battle of Pea Ridge, Arkansas happens. Union victory loosened the Confederate hold of Missouri, disrupted Southern control of a portion of the Mississippi River. The battle was one of the bloodiest west of the Mississippi. The Confederates suffered about 2,000 casualties. The Union had 1,384 casualties. And then on March 9th, another big Navy battle, big naval battle between the USS Monitor and the CSS Virginia's fought. The first naval battle in the history of the world between two ironclads fought in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yes, March 9th, 1862 was actually a Sunday. The USS Monitor versus the CSS Virginia, a new metal era of naval warfare. The Virginia decimated a Union fleet of wooden warships the day before, and it was just getting started! With crowds watching from the shores, the Virginia cannonballed the Monitor's pilot house, and it limped away totally foobard. The South wins the day. So that happened. You know, Battle of Hampton Roads. A uh, month later, on April 6th and 7th, the Battle of Shiloh, a.k.a. Pittsburgh Landing, first major battle of the war fought in Tennessee, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnson, veteran of the Texas War of Independence and the War of Mexico, or with Mexico, considered to be one of the finest officers the South has, is killed on the very first day of fighting. The Union victory further secures the career and fame of Union General uh, Ulysses, unconditional surrender Grant. It was an extremely bloody battle. More than 13,000 of Grant's approximately 62,000 troops are killed, wounded, captured, or missing. Of 45,000 Confederates engaged, there were more than 10,000 casualties. And, and I feel like now is a good time to talk about how these battles were fought. Because I keep throwing out all these numbers, but, but how were these battles actually fought, fought? First, an overview of this particular battle. On the morning of April 6, 1862, 40,000 Confederate soldiers, 40,000 dudes, under General Albert Sidney Johnson, struck the encamped divisions of Union soldiers near Pittsburgh Landing on the Tennessee River. The overpowering Confederate attack drove the unprepared federal soldiers back, threatened to overwhelm Major General Ulysses Grant's Army of the Tennessee. Some federal units made determined stands, and by afternoon, they'd established a battle line at the Hornet's Nest. Repeated rebel attacks supported by massed artillery killed or wounded many of the defending Yankees, pushed their lines back further. Johnson was mortally wounded, replaced by General Pierre Beauregard. Fighting continues until after dark 
and then the Union Army held. By the next morning, Grant had been reinforced by the Army of the Ohio under Major General Don Carlos Buell and heavily outnumbered Beauregard. Grant then launches a counteroffensive along the entire line, overpowering the weakened Confederate forces, driving Beauregard's army from the field. The Confederate defeat ends any hopes of blocking the Union advance into northern Mississippi. Uh, but how did this go down? Like these lines they're talking about. These battles were brutal. The main weapon of the Civil War was the Springfield, a 58 caliber black powder, uh, excuse me, black powder muzzle loader rifle with a 40 inch barrel firing ammo called mini balls. They could fire two to four loads per minute, depending on the skill of the soldier. Because of the relatively, uh, you know, inaccurate weapon, it was, this weapon is pretty inaccurate, and the lack of marksmanship training for most soldiers, it was usually used in mass fire tactics. It'd be large numbers of soldiers standing in long lines, shoulder to shoulder, firing simultaneously to saturate a target area. Most of this fighting was done in open fields. The shooting often started when soldiers were 250 to 350 yards out, you know, from their opponents because they could fire so far out, but they weren't that accurate, uh, but could be, they could reload faster than earlier rifles. The best battle tactic was just to have waves of hundreds of men hold their lines, right? So just be these long lines of dudes and then rows of them, shoulder to shoulder, marching and firing directly at a line of enemy soldiers, you know, directly at multiple lines. So that's these lines they talked about. If you tried to crawl towards your enemy, Right? They would just have more time to shoot you, so that was out. If you tried to run wildly, haphazardly across the battlefield in loose formations, then you weren't going to hit enough enemy soldiers to overtake their position, and they would pick you off. So that was out. So the best plan was just to march in broad fucking daylight straight into enemy fire, knowing there was a very good chance you would be shot. Imagine being commanded to be amongst the first wave of soldiers walking into that. Man, but those guys were saying their prayers, trying to make peace with God before they started walking. You often tried to flank your opponent. You wanted to march to the end of their line, put their line perpendicular to yours. That way, when they're trying to shoot you, their friends are in their way. Then there was artillery to consider. While you're marching directly into enemy fire, there was cannons, big metal tubes on wheels. A 10 or 12 pound piece of iron or lead would be stuffed into these cannons with a bag of black gunpowder. And then, be you know, they would light the powder and they would get the hell out of the way because the recoil on these cannons would kick the cannon back up to eight feet. The cannon would send a piece of metal half mile to a mile and a half away. Some shells were rigged to explode over the heads of troops and rain shrapnel on them. Others exploded on impact. When troops got close, cannons could fire grape shot, coffee cans full of 12 to 27 metal balls shooting out like a gigantic shotgun blast, you know, that would, you know, just rip holes through multiple men. Oftentimes it was brutal. And then there was the cavalry soldiers carrying rifles while on horseback the roles of the cavalry were in rough priority, reconnaissance, counter-reconnaissance, defensive delaying actions, pursuit and harassment of defeated enemy forces, some limited offensive actions, long-distance raiding against enemy lines of communications, supply depots, railroads, that kind of thing. So think about all this going down in one battle. You're walking across a huge field. You're carrying your rifle. You're walking briskly, lightly running, depending on what point in the battle it is, shoulder to shoulder. As artillery fire rains down on you for hundreds of yards before your enemy is even in firing range, then they're starting to shoot at you. You're pausing to shoot, then load in advance, then shoot, then load in advance over and over at a line of soldiers directly in front of you. You know, if you get close enough, now you're bayoneting them. Now it's hand-to-hand -hand fighting. If you can overpower them or flank them, you know, uh, when you get close, you have grape shot ripping through your line oftentimes. If you get overpowered and you start to retreat, then sometimes the cavalry can rush in and pick you and your remaining fellow soldiers apart. Maybe you get cut down with the cavalry officer's sword. If you're wounded but live, 
You might be carried away to a field hospital where if you've been shot in any of your extremities and the bullet or shrapnel didn't pass very cleanly through your limb, you are now having that limb crudely and quickly amputated. Amputations are extremely common, although the exact number is not known. Approximately 60,000 surgeries, about three quarters of all operations performed during the war were amputations, right? Roughly 75% of every operation operation is just cutting off a limb. Doctors often took over houses, churches, schools, barns for hospitals. Uh, The field hospital was located near the front lines, sometimes only about a mile back. Anesthesia's first recorded use was in 1846. It was in use during the Civil War, thank God. Chloroform was the most common anesthetic used in 75% of operations, usually applied to a cloth held over the patient's mouth and nose and then was withdrawn after the patient was unconscious. If chloroform wasn't available, you had your arm or leg amputated after taking nothing more than a swig of whiskey while other soldiers held you down. And then sometimes you would wake up because you weren't given enough chloroform mid-amputation. Luckily, this was somewhat rare, but it did happen fairly often. A capable surgeon could amputate a limb in 10 minutes. If you were somehow conscious, I bet that 10 minutes didn't feel very fucking quick. Surgeons would work all day and night with piles of limbs reportedly reaching four or five feet high in major battles. A fucking pile of arms and legs, five feet high. The hospitals were filled with the screams of the dying and the smell of blood and gore. Just whiskey, laudanum, saw. Lack of water and time meant the doctors didn't have time to wash off their hands or wash off their instruments. It was bloody fingers being used as probes, bloody knives for scalpels, doctors operating covered in blood and you know pus-stained coats. Surgical fevers and gangrene were constant threats. One witness describes a civil war, a civil war field hospital like this. Tables about breast high had been erected upon which the screaming victims were having legs and arms cut off. So clearly, they're feeling it. The surgeons and their assistants stripped to the waist and bespattered with blood stood around, some holding the poor fellows while others, armed with long bloody knives and saws, cut and sawed away with frightful rapidity, throwing the mangled limbs on a pile nearby as soon as removed. If a soldier survived the table, he faced uh, awful surgical fevers oftentimes. It was hell. Everything about fighting that war sounds absolutely horrific. And these men were butchering and being butchered by other Americans. Sometimes they were fighting people they'd gone to school with. Uh, sometimes they were fighting people they'd been friends with. Some cases, they fought their own neighbors, brothers, sons, fathers, and families, you know, where some members chose to fight for one side and other members chose to fight for the other. I understand that all wars are messy, but this, oh, especially messy. Uh, now back to the timeline. April 24th, 1862, a Union fleet of gunships under Admiral David Farragut passes Confederate forts guarding the mouth of the Mississippi. On April 25th, the fleet arrives in New Orleans where they demand the surrender of the city. Within two days, the fort falls into Union hands and the mouth of the Great River is under Union control. Big Union win. The Battle of Seven Pines is fought near Richmond, Virginia on May 31st and June 1st, 1862. General Joseph Johnson, commander of the Confederate Army in Virginia, is wounded and replaced by Robert E. Lee. I think I've heard of him. Uh, Lee renames his command the Army of Northern Virginia. Union casualties were 5,031, Confederate 6,134. It was the largest and bloodiest battle of the war to date after Shiloh eight weeks earlier. Both sides would claim victory. June 6th, the Battle of Memphis, Tennessee is waged. A Union flotilla under Commodore Charles Davis successfully defeats a Confederate river force on the Mississippi River. The city in Memphis surrenders. The Mississippi River is now in Union control, except for its course west of Mississippi, where the city of Vicksburg stands as the last Southern stronghold on the Great River. And the fighting Union casualties limited to Colonel Charles Ellett. The colonel later died of measles, which he contracted while recovering from his wound. 
fucking disease. All those weapons I spoke of earlier, all the saw-happy doctors, and then also so much disease. A precise Confederate casualties not known, but likely around 200. August 30th, 31st, the Battle of Second Bull Run is fought on the same ground where one year before the Union Army was defeated, sent reeling in retreat to Washington, and again, the Union Army is defeated. Total casualties for the battle top 22,000. Union losses numbering almost 14,000. Just two weeks later, the Battle of uh, Antietam, Maryland, becomes the bloodiest single day of the Civil War. The loss ends General Lee's first attempt to invade the North. The Union suffers uh, 12,401 casualties, the Confederates 10,316. Following the Union victory, President Lincoln will introduce the Emancipation Proclamation. On December 13th, 1862, the major battle of Fredericksburg, Virginia is fought. In this battle, the huge Union Army of the Potomac under General Ambrose Burnside is soundly defeated by Lee's forces after a risky river crossing and sacking of the city. It's remembered as one of the most one-sided battles of the war with Union casualties more than twice as heavy as the Confederates. A visitor to the battlefield described the battle to U.S. President Lincoln as butchery. Uh, the, U- the Union Army suffered 12,653 casualties out of 122,000 troops, while the South lost 5,377 uh, out of over 78,000 troops. Over 200,000 troops clashing in that battle. Imagine drone footage of that. Imagine being in the middle of that after what I described earlier. That must have felt like you literally descended into the bowels of hell. Check out these two letters, two short letters sent back home from soldiers who fought in that battle. This one's from a battleground near Fredericksburg is where it was sent, December 14th, 1862. Dear Brother John, thank God I've escaped one of the most terrible charges of the war. Saturday was the awful day which none of us will ever forget. Our division had to charge uphill in the face of batteries, which were pouring death and destruction into our ranks. How I happened to escape is more than I can account for, as the boys fell all around me. We lost out of our company, killed, wounded, and missing, 42. Albert Inc. is missing. I presume he is on the field, either killed or wounded. Cyrus Campbell was wounded. Major Bradley had his leg taken off. The worst of all is we had to fall back. The reinforcements on the left wing did not come in time. We have but 21 men left. Today, we expect to give them another trial. I pray God that he will preserve us from their deadly missiles. I never want to be under such terrible fire again. Such sights sicken the heart. My health is poor, which makes it worse for me. I cannot stand double quickening. I came very near taking prisoner when we fell back. I was so weak that I could scarcely stand, but I managed to get out, although the balls were whisting all around me. Our only hope is in God. Joshua House. And one more uh, from Fredericksburg, December 14th, 1862. Dear wife, We took the city without much loss, but yesterday told heavy on us, and we gained nothing. The loss in our regiment is terrible. We went in the fight with 72 men and came out with 21. I am slightly wounded in the fingers on the left hand, and I am detailed to take care of Major Bradley. The poor fellow had his leg taken off below the knee. Many are only hurt a little, and few are killed, but thank God I still live. One would have thought it impossible for a single man to escape through the shower of shell, grape, and ball in which we were caught. Charlie Steele got hurt a little. The ball entered his haversack and was stopped by his plate. I got five balls in my clothes, one in my haversack, one in my cartridge box. One got blood drawn on my fingers. Uh, William Kendall was killed instantly by a grape shot in the head. Buzz Kirk is not hurt, Martin Birch. Man, letters like that makes it all so much more real to me, so personal. Letters written by guys who were there, who fought, who witnessed the horrors I was talking about moments ago. They saw that shit. 
Another major battle, uh, major battles fought on New Year's Eve lasting until January 3rd, 1863, the Battle of Stones River, Tennessee, fought between the Union Army of the Cumberland under General William Rosencrantz, the Confederate Army of T- Tennessee under General Braxton Bragg. The costly Union victory frees Middle Tennessee from Confederate control and boosts northern morale. Stones River was a hard-fought, bloody engagement with some of the highest casualty rates of the war. The Union suffered approximately 13,000 troops killed. The Confederates, roughly 10,000. On March 3rd, 1863, the North begins to draft soldiers due to not enough volunteers. Conscription had begun in the South already the year before. On May 1st through the 4th, the Battle of Chancellorsville, Virginia, is fought and won by the South. General Lee's greatest victory is marred by the mortal wounding of Stonewall Jackson, who dies on May 10th. Of 130,000 Union soldiers engaged in Chancellorsville, more than 17,000 were casualties. Of 60,000 Confederates, more than 12,000 were casualties. Holy shit, that is fucking crazy. That many people, 190,000 soldiers, and General Lee won with 60,000 soldiers uh, fighting a force of 130,000. Soon after, Lee asked Jefferson Davis for permission to invade the North, take the war out of Virginia. May 18th, the siege of Vicksburg, Mississippi begins. Union forces under General Grant attack Confederate defenses outside the city. On May uh, 19th to the 22nd, if Vicksburg falls, uh, the um, Mississippi River will be completely controlled by the Union. Vicksburg will surrender on July 4th. The Union victory, a major defeat for the South. It completed the North's Anaconda Plan, a plan focused on a Union blockade of the southern ports that called for an advance down the Mississippi River to cut the South in two. The Battle of Brandy Station, Virginia, fought on June 9th. Union cavalry forces across the Rapidan River, or they crossed it to attack General J.E.B. Stewart's cavalry and discover that Lee's men are moving west towards the Shenandoah Valley. The largest cavalry battle of the Civil War also marks the beginning of the Gettysburg Campaign. The South's plan to invade Pennsylvania. They wanted to take the war to the north, demoralize the Union by taking the war to their soil. This is the first major battle fought on Union soil. Of the Union, 11,000 men... Uh, 81 are killed, 403 are wounded, 382 missing or captured. Of the 9,500 Confederates, 51 are killed, 250 are wounded, 132 missing or captured. Not clear who won. The Gettysburg Campaign continues on June 28th. Confederates pass through York, Pennsylvania, reach the bridge over the uh, Susquehanna River at Columbia, but Union militia set fire to the bridge, denying access to the East Shore. Southern cavalry skirmishes with Union militia near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And then on July 1st, the great big battle begins that will last until July 3rd, the Battle of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. It dashes Robert E. Lee's hopes for a successful invasion of the North. Sunday, 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 but actually a Wednesday, Thursday, and a Friday. Robert E. Lee, the mouth of the South, he rides a horse named Traveler. He takes on George G. Meade in the Battle of Gettysburg. The Old Snapping Turtle. Seriously, I didn't even make up that nickname. He rides a horse named Old Baldy. Also, seriously, his nicknames suck. We're going to sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. This battle involves around 85,000 men in the Union's Army of the Potomac under Major General George Gordon Meade, approximately 75,000 in the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, commanded by General Lee. Casualties at Gettysburg total... 23,049 for the Union, 28,063 for the Confederacy, more than a third of Lee's army. These largely irreplaceable losses to the South's largest army combined with the Confederate surrender of Vicksburg, Mississippi, marked what is widely regarded as a huge turning point, perhaps the turning point in the war against the South, although the conflict will continue for nearly two more years. 
Uh, Union Naval and Land Forces attack Confederate defenses near Charleston, South Carolina, July 10th and 11th. Among the Union troops is the 54th Massachusetts Colored Infantry, the first African-American regiment of volunteers to see combat. Hail Nimrod! How those men must have fucking loved to fire Confederates. I mean, how could he not? However, victory would not be there as the Confederates would fend off the attack. On July 13th, draft riots began in New York City and elsewhere, as disgruntled workers and laborers seething over the draft system that seemingly favors the rich attacked the draft office in African-American churches. Holy shit. Uh, the riots continued through July 16th, attacking the churches. See, like I said earlier, not everyone in the North uh, really gave a shit about the plight, uh, the plight of the black Southern slave. Uh, near Falling Waters, Maryland, on July 13th and 14th, Union troops skirmished with Lee's rear guard. That night, the Army of the Northern Virginia crosses the Potomac River and the Gettysburg Campaign ends. Uh, July 18th marks the second assault on Battery Wagner, South Carolina, leading the Union infantry charge as the 54th Massachusetts Colored Infantry, commanded by Colonel Robert Goudshaw, who's killed and buried with the dead of his regiment. The South again fends off Union soldiers. On September 19th and 20th, the Battle of Chickamauga, Georgia, is fought. I had not heard of this one. The Union Army of the Cumberland under General William Rosencrantz defeated, nearly routed by the Confederate Army of Tennessee, commanded by General Braxton Bragg. Rosencrantz Army retreats to the supply base at Chattanooga, Tennessee, with 16,170 Union and 18,454 Confederate casualties. The Battle of Chickamauga, or Chickamauga was the second costliest battle of the Civil War, ranking only behind Gettysburg. Uh, by far the deadliest battle fought in the West. Crazy how much more well-known the Battle of Gettysburg is. Uh, I'm guessing uh, partly because no one cares about second place. And also, uh, Chickamauga, not as catchy as Gettysburg. A lot more fighting happens over the next few months. November 19th, President Abraham Lincoln delivers that Gettysburg address. A lot more fighting happens for another month. Uh, December 8th, 1863, Lincoln issues his Proclamation of Amnesty and Reconstruction, which would pardon those who participated in the existing rebellion. South, for the most part, doesn't give a shit. Uh, keeps fighting. February 9th, 1864, after weeks of digging, 109 Union officers escaped from the notorious Libby Prison in Richmond, Virginia. Largest, most sensational escape of the war. Though 48 of the escapees were later captured, two drowned, 59 made their way back to Union lines. How badass. Civil War jailbreak? Why isn't there a movie about that? I hope some of the 59 survivors lived long lives. February 17th, 1864, fucking submarine shows up. What the hell is a submarine doing here? In the first successful submarine attack of the Civil War, the CSS H.L. Hunley, a seven-man submergible craft, attacks the USS Houstonic outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, struck by the submarine's torpedo, I think it's Houstonic. I missed that on A. The Houstonic broke apart and sank, taking all but five of her crew with her. Unfortunately, because it was 1864 and submarines uh, really sucked, the Hunley also lost. Never heard from again until discovered in 1995. Those poor bastards inside. What a quick roller coaster of emotions for them. Hooray, we did it. We just sunk their battleship. Ah, shit. Why, why are we thinking? Because it's 1864 and it's a fucking submarine. What were we thinking doing this? Uh, March 3rd, uh, 1864, Ulysses Grant assumes command of all Union armies in the field. He immediately celebrates by getting shit-faced. Uh, over the next four weeks, the Confederates lose several times in Louisiana. Then on April 12th, they win in Tennessee. That day, they capture Fort Pillow, Tennessee. After a rapid raid through central and western Tennessee, Confederate cavalry under Nathan Bedford Forrest attack and overwhelm the Union garrison at Fort Pillow. Among those garrisoning the fort were African-American troops, many of whom were murdered by Forrest's angered troops after they had surrendered. Uh, 
The affair was investigated, and though charges of an atrocity were denied by Confederate authorities, of course, the events at Fort Pillow cast a pall over Forrest's uh, reputation and remained an emotional issue for the rest of the war. On May 4th and 5th, Generals Grant and Lee clash in Virginia in the Battle of the Wilderness, the opening battle of the Overland Campaign or Wilderness Campaign. General Grant, accompanying the Army of the uh, Potomac under General Meade, issued orders for the campaign to begin on May 3rd. Lee responded by attacking the Union column in dense woods and underbrush uh, in an area known as the Wilderness, west of Fredericksburg, Virginia. Most agreed that Union casualties were around 17,000, 18,000. Uh, Confederate casualties were as high as around 11,400. Uh, based on the numbers, the Battle of the Wilderness was the fourth bloodiest battle of the Civil War, ranking behind Gettysburg and Spotsylvania. The Union's Atlanta campaign begins on May 7th with three Union armies under his command. General William T. Sherman marches south from Tennessee into Georgia against the Confederate Army of Tennessee under General Joseph Johnston, the objective being the capture of Atlanta. The Atlanta campaign would run from May to September, directly precede Sherman's infamous march to the sea. The number of Union soldiers engaged in the Atlanta campaign varied from about 98,000 to 112,000, while the number of Confederate soldiers was around 50,000. On May 4th and 15th, as part of Atlanta, uh, that, that campaign, the Battle of Resaca, Georgia raged. This massive battle featured over 158,000 total troops, 99,000 with the Union, 60 for the South. Ger uh, General Sherman's armies are blocked by Resaca, by General Johnson's Army of Tennessee, or blocked at Resaca. After two days of maneuvering and intense fighting, Johnston withdraws. German advances but takes precautions against ordering any further mass assaults where high casualties may occur. Both sides lost around 2,800. On June 1st through the 3rd, General uh, Lee gets his last major victory of the Civil War in the Battle of Cold Harbor, Virginia. It was a sprawling two-week engagement that left more than 18,000 soldiers killed, wounded, or captured. The South wins again on June 10th in the Battle of Bryce's Crossroads, Mississippi. In spite of being outnumbered almost two to one, Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest attacks and routes the Union command under General Samuel Sturgis. There are uh, 2,600 Union, ca Union casualties out of 8,500 troops, compared with less than 500 Confederate casualties out of 3,500. On July 9th, the Confederates damn near cre uh, create an opportunity for themselves to attack the Capitol. This is when the Battle of Monocacy, Maryland, goes the South's way. In an attempt to draw Union troops away from the ongoing siege of Petersburg and Richmond, a Confederate force under Jubal Early quietly moves north into Maryland. Early had made excellent progress until he reaches Frederick, where a force of 6,000 federal troops under General Wallace is arrayed to delay his advance. Though the battle was a Union defeat, it also touted, uh, it, it was touted as the battle that saved Washington, for it succeeded in holding back Early's march until troops could be sent to the capital's defense. During the fighting, roughly 2,200 men were killed, wounded, or captured, uh, or listed as missing from the, from the Union. 900 Confederate, uh, oh, I'm sorry, 2,200 total. Confederate and Union. Jesus Christ. So many numbers. Gives me dizzy sometimes. July 11th and 12th, the Confederates attack Washington in the Battle of Fort Stevens. Jubal Early's troops arrive on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., trade cannon firing with the token Union force remaining in the forts around the city. President Lincoln is able to see the fighting right from the Capitol. He's observing the skirmishing from Fort Stevens as reinforcements from the Army of the uh, Potomac arrive and quickly fill in the works. Early withdraws that evening. Uh, luckily, the South, over three years into the war, pretty crazy, three years of Union forces attacking them and three years of, uh, you know, the Union mostly winning the war on Southern soil, and they're still not ready to raise the white flag, and they almost take D.C. July 21st and 22nd is the Battle of Atlanta. 
General James McPherson, commander of the Union Army of Tennessee, killed during the fighting. Of the 34,863 Union troops engaged in the battle, 3,722 killed, wounded, captured, or missing. Confederate forces suffered an estimated 5,500 casualties out of uh, over 40,000 soldiers. Despite losing, uh, General McPherson, the Union, uh, or two General McPherson, uh, or excuse me, despite losing the Union wins this battle, despite losing the General, Jesus Christ, despite losing General McPherson, there we go, the Union wins this battle, and it sets the stage for the Union taking the city on September 1st. Didn't understand my own notes there. And then that paves the way for Sherman's march to the sea. A lot more fighting occurs over the rest of the summer. On September 1st, Atlanta falls completely. Confederate troops under General Hood evacuate the city. General Sherman's army occupy the city and its defenses the following day. Union casualties, about 31,600. Man, a lot of casualties to take that city. Confederate casualties, about 35,000. An estimated 4,423 Union soldiers died during the Atlanta campaign. Uh, An estimated 3,044 Confederate soldiers died. So much more fighting happens over the next few months. My heck, gosh dang. On November 8th, 1864, Abraham Lincoln is reelected president of the United States, and he starts his second term famously by holding a press conference and telling the South to, and I quote, suck his big black dick. Uh, No, he doesn't. Uh, But that'd be fucking awesome if he would have said those exact words. You can fucking suck my big black dick. Like, wait, wait, what? So confusing on so many levels. On November 16th, General Sherman's Army of Georgia begins the infamous March to the Sea which includes some 60,000 soldiers on a 285-mile march from Atlanta to Savannah. The purpose of Sherman's march to the sea is to frighten Georgia's civilian population into abandoning the Confederate war effort, and it works. Sherman's troops march south towards Savannah in two wings, about 30 miles apart. On November 22nd, 3,500 Confederate cavalry uh, start a skirmish with the Union soldiers at Griswoldville, but that ends so badly 650 Confederate soldiers are killed or wounded compared to 62 Yankee casualties. The Southern troops initiate no more, no more battles with Sherman. Instead, they flee south ahead of Sherman's troops, wreaking havoc as they go. They wreck bridges, chop down trees, burn barns filled with provisions before the Union army can reach them. They're burning down their own stuff. The Union soldiers are just as uh, terrible. They raid farms, plantations, steal and slaughter cows, chickens, turkeys, sheep, hogs, uh, take, you know, food, especially bread and potatoes, as much as they could carry. You know, the, the, these groups of foraging soldiers are nicknamed bummers uh, as they burn whatever they couldn't carry. The marauding Yankees needed the supplies, and they also wanted to teach the Georgians a lesson. It isn't so sweet to secede, is what one soldier wrote in a letter home, as they thought it would be. J- uh, Sherman's troops arrived in Savannah on December 21st, 1864, about three weeks after they left Atlanta. The city was undefended when they get there. The 10,000 Confederates who were supposed to be guarding it had already fled. Sherman presented the city of Savannah and his 25,000 bales of cotton to President Lincoln as a Christmas gift. Uh, hilarious that he presents it that way. Hey, look what I got you. I gave you a city and 25,000 bales of cotton. What'd you give me? Oh, a card <laughs> and a tie. That's, that's nice. Uh, February 1st, Sherman's army leaves Savannah to march through the Carolinas. February 7th, Sherman's army captures uh, Columbia, South Carolina, while Confederate defenders evacuate Charleston. February 22nd, Wilmington, Wilmington, North Carolina falls to Union troops, closing the last important Southern port on the East Coast. President Abraham Lincoln inaugurated for his second term as president in Washington, D.C. on March 4th. And with the Confederacy's chance at victory looking extremely slim now, he says, and I quote, but seriously, you guys, South can suck my big black dick. Am I right or am I right? I wish. Uh, March 11th, Sherman's, occupi- or Sherman's army occupies Fayetteville, North Carolina. 
a few days later on March 16th, and then on March 19th to the 21st, the battles of uh, Avers, I, I tried with this one. I hate this word so much. Uh, Avers, Aversboro, Aversboro, A-V-E-R-A-S-B-O-R-O-U-G-H, Aversboro, I think is how you do it. Uh, in Bentonville, North Carolina, go down. Sherman's army is stalled in its drive northward from Fayetteville, but succeeds in passing around the Confederate forces towards its object of Raleigh. Love Raleigh. Easy word to say. One of my faves. Uh, on March 25th, General Lee attacks Fort Stedman in Petersburg, Virginia. Petersburg, another great one. Uh, touted as Lee's last offensive, Confederate troops under General John B. Gordon briefly capture the Union fort in the Petersburg siege. Uh, you know, in an attempt to thwart Union plans for a late March assault. But by the end of the day, the Southerners have been thrown back out. Uh, the Confederate casualty count, 2,900 to the Union's 950. Southern morale plummeting. Soldiers starting to desert. The war is unquestionably lost for the Confederacy, but the fighting continues. And soldiers have been deserted on both sides throughout the war, but deserting more now. April 2nd, 1865 marks the end of a series of battles in Petersburg, Virginia. It will be the fall of Petersburg and Richmond. Generally abandons both cities and moves his army west in hopes of joining Confederate forces under General Johnston in North Carolina. His journey does not go well. The Battle of Sailors Creek, Virginia occurs on April 6th. A huge portion of Lee's remaining army, almost a third, is cornered along the banks of Sailors Creek and annihilated. When the dust settles, more than 8,800 Confederates had become casualties in the last major battle in the war in Virginia. Of those, roughly 7,700 captured or surrendered, one of the largest surrenders of any army without proper terms during the whole war, a substantial blow to Lee's already crippled army, which that morning had numbered scarcely 30,000. On April 9th, 1865, the South surrenders after the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. After an early morning attempt to break through Union forces blocking the route west to Danville, Virginia, Lee seeks an audience with General Grant to discuss surrender terms. Casualties for the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse were comparatively light, 260 for the Union, 440 for the Confederacy. That afternoon in the parlor of one Wilmer McLean, Lee signs documents of surrender. Random trivia about Wilmer. Uh, dude was a grocer and his house near Manassas, Virginia was involved in the first battle of Bull Run in 1861. His house gets fucked up. Uh, after the battle, he moves to Appomattox, Virginia, specifically to escape the war, thinking it would be safe there. And then General Robert E. Lee surrenders to Ulysses S. Grant in his house, right? His houses were involved in one of the first and one of the last encounters of the American Civil War. And then two years later, due to his business being crippled because of the war, he couldn't pay his mortgage and lost his second home. This poor son of a bitch. He must have hated Lincoln so much. Uh, April 12th, the Army of Northern Virginia formally surrenders and disbands. Two days later, on April 14th, President Abraham Lincoln is assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. At Ford's Theater in D.C. That, how much does that suck? Ain't that a bitch? He just won. He just barely won. And he gets shot in the head. I guess at least he died knowing he'd done what he set out to do. End slavery and unify the nation. And again, uh, listen to Suck 98 if you want to learn more about that assassination. And since they didn't have emails or texts back then and word traveled slow, it would take until June 2nd for all of the Confederate armies to understand that the war was for sure over and surrender. And that takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. What a suck. So much info. Sorry about some mispronunciations, I'm sure. But uh, I, I really did. And the time provided did my best. And, uh, you know, I will say on the pronunciations, I haven't gotten too many emails about that for a while. I, I think I'm doing a little better than I used to. 
And also just know that I err on the side of trying to keep it moving, trying to keep it engaging. If I, I could pronounce more effectively if I slowed everything way down, but then it would be something I wouldn't want to listen to. Uh, but that being said, I don't want that to be an excuse for laziness either. So man, but this one, so many random little like towns and sites from like fucking what? Who came up with that word? Uh, with roughly 10,500 battles, engagements, other military actions, one of the most staggering parts of the U.S. Civil War was just how uncivil it was. Man, 623 soldiers died in the war, a number that would equate to around 6.2 million today if the same percentage was applied to our modern population. The North lost 360,222 men, according to battlefield reports and muster-out rolls and applications by widows and orphans for pensions and survivors' benefits, which could be claimed whether a soldier had been killed in battle, succumbed to his injuries later, or died of disease. Huge number. South lost roughly 258,000 men. In comparison to 620,000 American lives lost in the Civil War, 25,000 died in the Revolutionary War. 116,516 died in World War I. 405,000 died in World War II. 58,220 died in Vietnam. 36,516 in the Korean War and 4,497 in the Iraq War. More died in the Civil War than the Revolutionary War, World War I, World War II, and Vietnam combined. It lasted four years. Four years of millions of people not knowing when the war would reach their town or city if it hadn't already. And check this out, about 2.75 million soldiers fought in the Civil War. Two million for the North, 750,000 for the South. Millions and millions of families affected. So much blood, but I do think it was worth it. Easy for me to say I know, but I, uh, I do believe that. Slavery was over. Horrible racism, the KKK, Jim Crow laws, lynching, segregation, so much more idiotic and needless evil, ignorance uh, that was racially motivated would follow. But all of that was better than widespread plantation slavery, and slavery had to end before other types of racist shit could be fought against and eventually defeated. And now we still have a lot to work on, but not nearly as much as we did in 1861. All of us meat sacks will have to forever work on keeping our us versus them tribalism in check. Sometimes I think it's hardwired into our DNA. I also think if we can just keep chipping away at it, we can rewire ourselves slowly but surely. You know, if we don't start moving backwards. So let's keep moving forward. Don't be a dumb shit racist, please. Whatever color you are, it's always dumb to think any other color is inferior to yours. Always remember that if you experience a lot of assholes of one particular color, you know, and you start to think that that entire color is assholes, well, you, you've just met the wrong ambassadors. You've been unlucky, you know? And then think about how many assholes you've met that share your color. And then go, oh yeah, that's right. Every tribe has some assholes in it. And then think of the good people you've met of each color. That's right. Every tribe has some not assholes too. You know, fucking Nimrod. Uh, let's hope we never get that divided again. Let's hope we never have to experience looking out our front windows and witnessing war on our front lawns. We Americans so lucky to have avoided that for so long now. Sheltering in place, not fun. Gets old real quick. Sucks in a lot of ways, but it beats dodging bullets and bombs. Hope you enjoyed this topic. If you're a Civil War reenactor or historian, I'm sure you wish I would have gone into more detail in places. I'm sure I'll get some emails about some things. But I'm also sure that 90% of my audience would have probably bailed in this episode if I did an extremely detail-laden, 12-hour methodical suck. And I'd lose my mind completely from sleep deprivation. Uh, for everyone but the diehard Civil War buff, I hope you know a lot more than you did a couple hours ago about the Civil War. Hail Nimrod. Time now for Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, it is unbelievable just the amount of casualties, 620,000 
which again, if the civil war was fought today and the ratio was the same with our current population, that would be 6.2 million dead. You know, there are 1,347,106 active members of the military today. The civil war would have killed all of our active military members almost five times over if you carry over that ratio. Number two, the civil war was primarily about slavery, not states' rights. As we showed, the Confederacy actually stood against state rights over the course of their rebellion. The evidence is very clear that slavery was the major root of it all. Number three, the civil war began and ended in the same dude's home, right? Homes, plural. Wilmer McLean had his house firebombed as part of the start of the civil war. And then was also the owner of the living room in which the surrender treaty to end the civil war was signed with his side of the ward surrendering. Then he loses that home to the bank a few years later. Wilmer, not a lucky dude. Number four, remember when Abraham Lincoln told the South to suck his big black dick? I love that. That was my favorite part of the civil war that never happened. Number five, something new. A lot of civil war reenactors are currently sad and it has nothing to do with social distancing and not being able to run around on the weekends and pretend to shoot each other with 19th century uh, muzzle loaders. Many civil war battlefields are threatened by development. The U.S. government has identified 384 battles that had a significant impact on the larger war. Many of these battlefields have been developed, turned into shopping malls, pizza parlors, housing developments, etc. Many more are threatened by future development. Since the end of the Civil War, veterans and other citizens have struggled to preserve the fields on which Americans fought and died. The American Battlefield Trust and its partners have preserved tens of thousands of acres of battlefield land. You can join the American Battlefield Trust and give them some cash to preserve uh, U.S. Civil War battlefields by mail. You can send your check made out to the American Battlefield Trust to 1140 Professional Court, Hagerstown, Maryland, 21740. If you are interested to make a gift by phone or to put a, in a, you know, a, a cruel crank call while you're bored, maybe drunk and sheltered in place, you can call 1-888-606-1400 and you can ask for Wilmer McLean. Or you can just be nice and, uh, you know, you can just uh, donate. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Civil War has been sucked. What a crazy war, man. I'm going to think about that shoulder-to-shoulder march into a field of rifle and cannon fire for a long time, I think. So much no thank you. So much no me gusta. Uh, Thank you, Nimrod, for letting me live now. Way less cannon fire. Way more online content. Uh, Big thank you to the Time Suck team. Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. Reverend Dr. Paisley. The Bit Elixir app design crew. Logan and Kate at Spicy Club running BadMagicMerch.com. And the script keeper, Zach Flannery. And also a big team transition announcement. High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Valley Camp, no longer with the team here at Bad Magic Productions. It was a friendly party, and uh, and it had nothing to do with COVID-19. Uh, I will always be thankful for Harmony for taking the initiative to launch the Cult of the Curious Facebook group. Just a tick under uh, 20, actually uh, now, uh, sorry, uh, just over 20,000 members. Also, the Discord group, just uh, around 6,000 members in there. She helped organize the first ever gathering as well, so thank you, Harmony. Uh, the job she was doing here, it's just, uh, you know, it's a tough job. It's not for everybody. Working on a lot of content, a lot of emails and messages to reply to that just never end. A lot of topic that we're so thankful for. Uh, lots of topic entries to add to the voting board that we're thankful for. A lot of posts to make on IG and Facebook every week. It's a, every week, excuse me. It's a big grind game. I like the grind game. I like the pressure of having to prep and put out content every week, but it is not for everyone. Uh, I've talked to so many comics about what we do here. Uh, behind the scenes and they're just like what the fuck no thank you um yeah and so this job it just didn't work out and that's okay and we wish her the best going forward so going forward longtime sucker liz hernandez will be handling the facebook group managing emails thank you liz kate and logan from the spicy club our merch managers designers at badmagicmerch.com will be handling many of harmony's other former responsibilities 
They've been small, small business managers, basically their entire adult lives, professional creative grinders, putting out content uh, over and over every day for years. Uh, we're partnering with them behind the scenes to keep continually, not just improving merch, but improve social media content. Also, when the shelter-in-place shit is over, use Kate's background in event planning to build future gatherings, build the community aspect of this podcast further. So much more I want to do with this uh, you know, podcast and this community. I want five years in to look back with so much pride in what we've done. You know, look at uh, a sea of content, you know, uh, six figures of donations, so many friendships built, uh, built on dark humor, a thirst for learning, thinking critically about this weird world we all live in. And I really think that Kate and Logan have the tools, skill sets to take us uh, where I want to take this. So hail Nimrod, excited for the future. And again, thank you, High Priestess, for helping us get this far. Best of luck truly to you going forward. And now next week, we go cult, cult, cult. Oh, cult sucks are maybe my favorites. Uh, in August 2000, discovery of two people shot to death in a secluded Marin County, California studio apartment set police on a scramble to find who killed them. The apartment belonged to Selena Bishop daughter of blues rocker Elvin Bishop. One victim was Selena's mother, Jenny Villarin, 45-year-old bartender. The other was Villarin's longtime friend, 54-year-old 50 Jim Gamble. Same morning, authorities learned of a missing elderly couple. The daughter of Ivan, 85, and Annette Steinman, 88, hadn't heard from uh, her parents in several days and found things amiss when she arrived at her parents' home. Their minivan would soon be reported abandoned. Soon after, nine duffel bags with the dismembered remains of several humans would be recovered. And a 30-year-old former stockbroker and self-proclaimed prophet was behind it all. Next week, we examine the Children of Thunder cult and their insane plot to overtake the Mormon church. Cult, cult, cult. So get your fucking robes ready. Now let's check in with the always great various voices of this community in this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. First up, we got a Kansas City Butcher update coming in from super sucker Mark Kearns. Mark writes, hey, suck master supreme. So listen to the episode. I thought I'd send you something that I thought was pretty cool since I can relate to this one pretty well. I was raised in a town of about 10,000 people, about 45 minutes south of Can Relates This City <laughs> uh, called Harrisonville, Missouri. And there was this old man called Dell Dunmire. He once robbed a bank to pay off his gambling debts, and he ended up hiding the money. Once he got out of jail, he actually bought Bob Berdella's home in Kansas City, took the things out of it, and demolished it. He then collected things much like Berdella did. He even bought the old Walmart around here, named it his toy box, then did something crazy and called it the Bizarre Bazaar, picture included. I've been inside once before they sold it in its contents when he passed, and it was filled wall to wall with furniture and all sorts of other things. Just thought you get a kick from this. Keep on sucking those serial killers and true crime. Could give you a shout out to my, uh, could you give a shout out to my mom, Stacy, and wife, Kaylee, as they help me put all this together so you can enjoy it because we talk about it to this day. Sincerely, Mark, agent of the suck. And then uh, Mark provided some uh, some web links that'll be in the episode uh, notes that are on the Time Suck app. Uh, and said, uh, yeah, so thank you, Mark. I checked out the picture and the links and it is so weird that he named it Bizarre Bizarre. And uh, good that he demolished, you know, Bob Berdella's house, I guess. But why? Why did he take all the stuff out of there? Was it because he hated the guy? Or was he ever at one of Bob's rapey sex parties? Did he want to maybe destroy old evidence? That's where my brain goes. I, I've, this is all speculation. A weird dude for sure. Uh, we got other emails about Dell and his obsession with Berdella. Hail Nimrod. Thanks for sending that in. Another update about Bob Berdella coming in from top-notch sack Scott Myers, who writes, uh, Bobbert, piece of shit, Berdella was not the only psycho fuck 
to be influenced by the book, The Collector. Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, who you spoke about in your stand-up, were also big fans of the book, The Collector, uh, that, you know, that the movie is based on. I remember seeing an episode, uh, one of those true crime TV shows about those two bastards back in the 90s, and the book was found in their home, and it was talked about in their confessions as being a big influence on them. I bought the book after seeing the story, and honestly, it's fucking boring. Hail Nimrod, Scott Myers. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, yeah, funny that the book isn't that good. And so crazy that the book, or the, you know, the movie based on the book, influenced at least three serial killers. And yeah, I talked about Charles on my uh, Don't Wake the Bear special. I messed up his name. Uh, I was so annoyed. Um, of course I did. Uh, but that is a suck I keep forgetting to do. Leonard and Charles and their crazy crimes. Uh, thanks for reminding me. That will be a fascinating true time, true crime topic and, uh, and keep on sucking. Uh, now for a super nerdy update that I loved. On my assessment of Bob Berdella's ability to buy a home in 1969, coming in, you know, compared to now, coming in from longtime sucker and brainiac Thomas Fogg, Oh, I love this. Thomas writes, greetings, oh, he who sucks on high. I was listening to the Kansas City butcher suck at work today, sitting maybe 20 minutes from where this piece of shit Robert Perdella grew up. I work at a bank, which is considered an essential industry during these times. All of our lobbies are closed nationwide, except by appointment. I've recently been promoted to personal banker, uh, so I tend uh, to do the majority of our daily interactions now, which consists mostly of drive-through transactions. As I have a bit more free time than usual at work, I've started to listen to the suck at work and I'm working on catching up with the secret suck. Felt behind a while back, didn't have enough free time to keep up. I'm still a loyal space lizard, love the charity donations, will continue to be as long as I'm able to do so. While I was listening, you threw, and thank you. Uh, while I was listening, you threw some mortgage numbers out that sounded a bit off to me. Uh, my mom has been in banking for 40 years now, loves to hear older people complain about CD rates, or at least before COVID-19. People in the baby boomer, boomer generation and older were complaining that CD rates were still under 3% and were remembering when they were much higher. My mom happily points out that may be true, but you were paying way more interest for your home back then. Based on the Department of Labor, minimum wage didn't go to $1.60 an hour until 71. But even accounting for that, let's say this piece of garbage made what you estimated based on national averages of $360 a month because he was making 30% over minimum wage. Assuming he got the best possible rate at the best possible time, which would have been January or February of 1969, he'd have a rate of 7.5%. I, I love these details, Thomas. Uh, yes, I did not look into interest rates at the time, which definitely devalued my comparison. I'm glad you caught me. Uh, Thomas writes, his payment before HOI and property tax would be 112, accounting for a down payment of 4,000. That's before closing costs and fees which I wouldn't begin to guess due to the change in nature of banking over the decades. That would mean absolute best case scenario. His mortgage would be about 31% of his gross income, not accounting for taxes, other deductions from his paycheck. Still doesn't sound too bad, right? And again, this is referring to my argument that it was so much easier to buy a home back then than it is now. Uh, but consider he's a convicted felon at this point. He's already been convicted of selling drugs. Possible to likely that his credit isn't exactly perfect. Also, if he bought his home in March of 1970, the prime rate was at a whopping 9.29%. On top of that, the minimum wage was $1.45 an hour in 1970 or 251 a month, which accounting for a 30% salary increase would put him at 326. Assuming he put 4,000 down, got a prime rate of 9.29%, he'd have a monthly payment of $132. Now we're talking about 40% of his gross monthly income. And that's at prime, which is probably unlikely before property tax, before potential HOI costs, assuming he didn't have other legal fees at the time. Now that's assuming best case scenario at the worst possible time. I'm just putting into context that it wasn't quite as doable. Granted, to your point, there's no way in hell someone earning 30% more than minimum wage today, earning $16.34 a month, can A, save up the roughly $27,000 to pay 20% on a $136,000 house, 
just accounting for inflation and not the crazy spike in the housing market, and B, still afford to pay the monthly payments of 900 on a mortgage, that same 9.29% rate, uh, as that would be a debt-to-income ratio of more than 55% of their gross income. Luckily, now interest rates are closer to the 3, 3.5% range. That same minimum wage earner getting a mortgage at 3.5% interest, bringing that same 20% down payment, would have a monthly payment of 490 before everything is included, bringing it to a much more manageable, manageable total debt-to-income uh, ratio of 30%. Super long, rambling, socioeconomic math problem short, all of the dollar amounts are about the same, even with the lower interest rates. Basically, even though it was less money back in 1970 to buy a house with those interest rates, you're in pretty much the same boat right now, assuming he bought during the best possible time. Also keep in mind, consumer protections like Dodd-Frank weren't in place. Ultimately, even though proportionally less of the lower education jobs are available in comparison, you're better off being in the present, even for the purpose of buying a home. Just a different perspective on the times were better ideology in which I know you are adamantly against anyway. Like the classic people are sick now. When I was a kid, you could go for a bike ride. You never heard about someone getting kidnapped, raped, or tortured, etc. It may be true, but that's because we didn't have Amber Alert, social media, the internet, and probably most importantly, police departments that communicated information instantly. See the Ted Bundy suck. People have always been terrible to each other. See as far back as the Genghis Khan or Vlad the Impaler sucks. It's just that we recently started paying more attention. Your loyal space lizard and an essential and an essential employee, Thomas Fogg, aka the nerd with too much time on his hands. Now, man, fuck Thomas, that was so good, man. Great facts, great analogy. You laid that out so well. Holy shit, that does make me feel better about the current housing situation. Truly, maybe it really wasn't that much easier to get a house back in 1969, 1970 than it is now. At least in places like Kansas City. Uh, I told you before that I love your mind, Thomas. Keep an eye on me, right? I'm gonna need future corrections. Watch my math. And stay safe at that bank and hail Nimrod. A quick and kind message now from fabulous sack Eric Wester. Eric writes, hey, suck master, just wanted to say thank you. You keep putting a ton of effort into time suck, keeping us entertained and continuing to push us to think critically. In this uncertain time, critical thinking seems to be in short supply as toilet paper and medical equipment. I'm especially impressed with your ability to pump out great episodes even during this time of social distancing. It occurred to me that a lot of your income and lifestyle comes from doing stand-up shows and traveling around the country entertaining. With stay-at-home orders in place, comedy shows seem to be a bit dormant. Uh, just know that there is at least one fan, probably many more, thinking about you and your family during this time. Stay safe. Hopefully when this is all over, you can make it back out to Colorado soon. May you forever be COVID-19s. Huckleberry. Well, thank you, Eric. Uh, it's very nice. Yes, comedy tours are done. Until further notice, pretty weird. Uh, very thankful I still have this uh, and very glad that you and others continue to enjoy it. Ple uh, you know, uh, uh, please, Nimrod, uh, you know, may you keep enjoying it. So thank you very much. Now, a, a hilarious Cummins Law message from the sex suck. Uh, this, uh, I was dying this morning. Super sucker Mallory Hay, excuse me, got Cummins Law so hard. She writes, Dan, you son of a bitch. I got Cummins Law hard, really hard. Like bite the pillow hard. That's a fucking great reference. Context, I run a small horse farm with sm uh, a small breeding and training operation. Real horses, not that pony play shit. <laughs> anyway, we have a mare that's about a month out from being able to have her baby, which is really exciting. It also means visits from the vet to make sure everything is progressing normally. The other day, I was tidying in the barn while waiting for the regular vet to arrive to do a routine check on the mare. The mare was in the stall. I was tidying around the barn. Wasn't expecting him for another 15, 20 minutes. The barn is where I tend to listen to Time Suck over speakers fairly loudly because generally... I know when people are coming and going. I've yet to be Cummins Law there. Uh, not today. Uh, well, not today, though. Uh, the universe had other devious plans. Just as you're talking about 
fucking that sexy sex pony at nearly full blast, my beloved loyal vet walks into the barn very early. I'm laughing my ass off, not noticing he's there, yelling, oh my God, Dan, sex ponies, loudly to the sound of you joking about fucking sexy ponies. All of a sudden, my poor, kind of timid vet calls my name with a tone I can't unhear. I walk out of the stall with all the blood rushing to my face that it could probably handle, confront my vet, quickly fumbling with my phone to pause the episode from playing any more incriminating shit over the Bluetooth speakers. I try to explain to my vet that it's just a podcast, it's an episode about sex, and that you're talking about weird fetishes and pony play, and that it's hilarious. But honestly, I'm fumbling with my words so hard, Reed embarrassed as fuck because this guy is a guy I grew up with. He played football with my brother and his parents babysat me. Since I was a kid, I also had kind of a crush on him. Uh, he also happens to be one of the only vets in the area that I trust with my horses. Oh man, so fucking awkward. Anyway, he too looks embarrassed. I can tell he's weirded out. <laughs> we proceed with checking on the horse awkwardly, pretending like nothing's completely just happened. Uh, nothing completely fucked has just happened. It's also doubly weird seeing as he is there to do checkups in and around a horse's lady bits. After he leaves, I am convinced I'm going to need to find a new vet. Or at least the next time I book an appointment, someone else from the practice will have to come out. Or they just charge me, or that they're going to charge me a danger rate, crazy client rate on my bill. Who knows? I felt horrible about it. I spent the rest of my day feeling awkward and embarrassed, wondering if my vet thinks I'm into horses in a weird way. <laughs> or that I'm just entirely deranged. Later, he texts me. What's the name of that podcast? I need a laugh. Sounds like it's got a lot of them. Crisis averted. And you may have a new listener who's an actual horse vet, not just a weirdo pretending to check sexy pony play ponies. Apparently the rest of his day was filled with some pretty shitty emergencies and I'd given him a laugh with my insane moment of Cummins law. So here's to that. Thanks Dan and the crew for all you do. I really needed a laugh during this Corona craziness and you delivered. Uh, you also nearly delivered a heart attack to me, but that's okay. It makes me feel alive. Stay healthy. Stay safe and giddy up, Sasprilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, Mallory. That message fucking killed me. So funny. Uh, you painted that picture so well. I felt like I was there. Giggling in one of the stalls, watching this unfold. I love it. I hope he likes the show. Hope the two of you can laugh about this for years to come. Hail Nimrod. And uh, last up now. Really cool message about the sex suck from a from very cool meat sack. Pat wants to keep his last name out of this. And Pat writes, to he who sucketh most on high. Hey, Dan. Just wanted to send you my heartfelt appreciation for your sex suck. I know how weird that sounds now having written that out, but you get it. <laughs> like you, delving into the subject definitely gave me new insight on kink, communication, and experimenting with things in the bedroom. It was a wonderful experience to become more comfortable with my sex life. I write this message because I wanted to ask your thoughts on a particular part of sex that has definitely had an impact on me and I'm certain many others. Cards on the table. Sex ed really fucked me up. Took me a very long time to get over the fear-mongering tactics used by my elementary and middle school programs to keep us youngins from being too promiscuous. It was always that abstinence was the only way. Condoms failed. Birth control failed. STIs were rampant. For years, I would have an overwhelming fear of pregnancy or STIs, and it would greatly inhibit my sex life. This was made worse by the fact that I had a healthy libido, resulting in me literally shaking to the point of discomfort whenever the prospect of sex came up. Even practicing the safest sex possible would leave me anxious for weeks. I would constantly ruin interactions with this behavior and I felt helpless. This isn't to say that I believe that teens should be just let loose to figure these sort of things out, but there are sex ed programs out there that are far more uh, militant in their abstinence advocation than those I experienced. And I was living proof for a while as to how that can be detrimental to a young person's mental health. I'm in a far better place, thankfully now. I now embrace sex as a healthy part of my life and no longer am crippled by years of indoctrination. Safe, consensual sex is the sexiest sex. Hail, Lucifina. 
So Suckmaster, I was wondering if you had an opinion on sex ed. What do you believe would be a healthy, informative way to approach the subject with the youth of the world? Also, did this new deep dive into the world of sex and kink shape any new opinions in regards to sex ed for you? Would love your input. Sorry for the babbling. Hoping I made sense. Just kind of tough being honest about something that embarrassed me for such a long time. You and your team are the best. Time suck is the highlight of my life, especially in these batshit crazy times. Hail Nimrod, Pat. P.S. If you do end up reading this on the suck, I'd ask you, please omit my last name. I have some friends who are fellow suckers. Not sure if listening to our favorite podcast is the best way to expose them to my sex life. Great message, Pat. Yes, I took your last name out, as you know now. I honestly don't remember much about my sex ed classes, but I do remember uh, neither of my parents or step-parents having a healthy discussion about sex with me, uh, especially with my mom. My mom's super neurotic, uh, anxious to the level of being just paranoid, a worrier who was convinced if I had sex with anyone, I would get AIDS or someone pregnant, like for sure. And so then I became super worried about both and it definitely fucked my head up about sex. Uh, I think sex should be promoted as a positive human activity while also being, um, you know, uh, teachers, parents should be very honest about the consequences. I think sex ed should uh, talk about economics. You know, teach uh, kids uh, how much harder it is to buy a house, to retire comfortably, just to live a comfortable life if you have, you know, a lot of kids early on. You know, if you have three kids by the age of 21, it's going to affect your life dramatically. It's going to be a lot harder to go to college. You know, show them the numbers. How expensive is it to have a baby? How much time does it take to raise a child? Also give some real stats about STIs, you know, uh, you know, pregnancy rates with uh, various forms of birth control. It'll give a solid explanation of birth control options, but then also talk about the proven psychological benefits of being in a positive sexual relationship. We are sexual creatures, right? Take away the shame associated with sex. That comes from almost entirely religion. Stop teaching kids that sex is evil or that it's wrong to have sexual thoughts. Lust is not a sin. It's human nature, uh, I think. And if I'm wrong, well, then hail fucking Satan. And if you can't fucking heaven, what's the point in going? Uh, love your message, Pat. Uh, now go enjoy that dick that God gave you and hail Lucifina. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, Meat Sacks. Don't line up with your buddy shoulder to shoulder and walk into a field of bullets. And keep on sucking. Hey, uh, I know I wasn't able to get to everything in the Civil War sucked. There's a lot of, uh, you know, info to kind of go through. And one area I missed was buglers. There were the buglers. Uh, they definitely, you know, were part of the war. And I just... I decided not to talk to him just because kind of like today, uh, no one gave a shit about him because it's fucking dumb. So there's that. Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.